Hello and welcome to episode 83 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards. Joining me today, we have the Destiny Master. I am the master of my density. Your density? My Your density has yeah. brought to you. Exactly. <laughs> See, we got old guys on the show, so we can do a Back to the Future reference and, like, everybody will not get it except for us. And make sure to totally alienate most of the audience. Back to 55! I actually, I actually aim to alienate my audience almost all the time. Very nice, very nice. So the other uh, dulcet... That's why I'm still single, ladies. Ouch. Uh, the other dulcet tones that you heard there were Dave Yeager. Yeah, that's me. So. Alienating audiences since 1978. <laughs> uh, and Dave is the Divinity Master. So that's what we got here. Uh, two guys that are better at video games than me, apparently. Well, I mean, you can't beat yourself up over that. I, I know. I just it, it's it's just a massive. I'll do it, I'll do it for you. It's, oh, it's, thank you. <laughs> thank you. As as Stephen is just messaging me over and over again, like you're crazy. <laughs> Divinity is the best game ever. Divinity is pretty fantastic. But you know what? Why don't you just get the Wolfenstein story out of the way now, so that way we can move on. <laughs> oh god. Okay, so Stephen has this ultimate rage moment that made me. <laughs> it made me buy Wolfenstein: The New Order the second you did it. So <laughs> I wasn't at my computer, and I come back to it, and I, I hadn't been logged into like Steam Chat, and there's just this rambling. Is is it still in the chat window? I I really hope it is. It's, I don't think so because we've we've chatted since then. And I don't think it keeps. Oh okay, yeah, my rant is there, and Steven's like, I can't make this jump. What is wrong with this jump? I keep doing what they're telling me to do, and I can't make this jump. And then there's just just like hammering on keyboard like 20 times of just like aj sd like what is going on steven explain to the ladies and gentlemen uh, listening to the podcast what you could not do in this game so and this i am not the only one who had this problem and this is not an rpg at all but we're going to tell you the story anyway because laugh at my expense <laughs> and so in the beginning of the new wolfenstein you have to jump off of an airplane onto another plane and it's not like a question of did you time this jump correctly did you make enough distance? It's, did you do the sprint jump? Because anything else, you instantly get pushed down onto the wing and then you fall off and die. And if it was on console, it would have been way worse because the load time, like you have to watch it load every time. Uh, so the game says, get a running start and then jump. What it means is walk up to the edge and then press sprint and jump at the same time to do a sprint jump. And I, I didn't quite understand that. So after about 90 times dying in the first 10 <laughs> seconds of the tutorial... I started to get a little angry. <laughs> and see, what's funny is when I got to that part and I just had this moment of just like, oh, here we go. I did the sprint and I jumped and I got it on the first try. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, what the hell is all that about? <laughs> but then, like the next day, I'm playing Wolfenstein and I get to a part where you have to use a laser cutter on a fence and no matter how many times I lasered this fence, I could not get through it. And you have to, like, you're using a short ammo supply, and then you need to go recharge your laser. I must have, Stephen, honest to God, I recharged my laser, like, 40 times. You're saying you were charging your lasers. I was just flipping out, incoherent, babbling, screaming at the screen, like, what is going on? This doesn't work as a mechanic. Like, uh, this is not working. And then, like, you sent me a link that uh, apparently this is a problem that some people ran into. So then I, like, reloaded the spawn point and I got it on the first try. And I was like, yeah. what was all that about? Like, is this really weird? Like, uh, us both running into weird instances of, like, the game is not working as advertised. Like, nothing, I mean, says, nothing says heroic uh, <laughs> escapism like lasering a fence. I know! <laughs> 
you know what, though, to the game's credit, it was my mistake. I was the one not jumping correctly. So at least in my case, it was just my fault. I, maybe I was but. just doing a very bad job of lasering a fence. No, I think I think you legitimately had a laser fence glitch. I, I, I've heard that can happen. Maybe. Uh, that's a weird game. Like, um, I really like it. But it, um, it it makes me very nervous. I said this to Steven the other day. It makes me very nervous for the Evil Within because Evil Within is also an id Tech 5. id Tech 5 does not play well with ATI cards at all. Like my, I feel, I feel like you're always saying this game doesn't work well on ATI cards. That's why I tell everyone not to buy ATI cards. I, I know, I know. I, I, I hear you on that one. But like when I run into a problem where I'm playing the game, it's using 20% of my graphics card and like I'm still getting texture pop in and this, the frame rate is dropping left and right. There's nothing I can do about that. And of course, then I go onto the forums and it's so your mileage may vary on this game. Like people with insane rigs and like some people with tight uh, GPUs are having trouble running this game. Like, and what's, fu- what's funny too is that my card is like four years old at this point, and I run the game almost like perfectly. Yeah. So I, I was like, yeah, I guess it is mileage may vary. I mean, it, I have an Nvidia card, but it really is, and it, it's kind of showing that you know, uh, as there's so much excitement over the new Doom announcement and everything, it really does show you that when it, if you do not optimize a game correctly, or if you're working on a really crappy engine. It's going to come back to bite you, and now everyone, like, it seems like every news story that's online right now is people losing their minds over the fact that uh, The Last of Us Remastered is going to run at 60 frames per second on PlayStation 4, and I'm like, yeah, see how big of a deal this is? Like, when a game is running at that clip, it just, it looks better, it plays better, it's just a far different experience, and it's not PC gaming elitism, it's it's not, oh, it needs to be 60 on PC, it's, no, every game should be 60, it doesn't matter if it's on consoles or PC, if the game's at 60, you're gonna have a better experience. I, I like 60, but I don't necessarily care as long as it's a stable 30. Yeah. Like, The Last of Us Remastered also has the option to lock it at 30. That's weird, I don't know why they're including that. Well, because I'm, I'm assuming it's because it's not going to be locked at 60 if you're on 60, or if somebody just you know gets weirded out. It's like with the Hobbit movie where like it was shot in uh, like, yeah. daytime soap opera frame rate instead of movie <laughs> frame rate, and uh, like people didn't like it, so they released. I think they released two versions. Yeah, we we went and saw the regular 24 frames, but uh, yeah, we're way off talk of it, topic. Topic. Say, let's talk about RPGs. Yeah, let's talk about RPGs. That's what people uh, listen uh, to us for, I guess. I'm actually just here to listen to Dave. Well, the Hobbit's an RPG, so we're kind of there, right? So, <laughs> yeah, it has, it has Elf. It has I mean, Wargs. It has terrible party construction, though, but, I mean, you know, no balance whatsoever. <laughs> we, have, we have 19 dwarves who are all warriors and uh, a rogue. And, and a wizard, occasionally. A wizard who never sticks around. Yeah, or uses what's, it. Also, what spells does Gandalf actually have? Oh, Gandalf <laughs> has, like, light my staff up and yeah. get killed by a Balrog. Yeah, he has, like firework-making capabilities. He's got craft skills. He does have communicate with animals, which is a skill that you can get in Divinity Original Sin. Segue. I suppose that's true. That's that's actually why I like Lord of the Rings Online for sticking to the fiction and not letting you play as a wizard. Because the wizards are like exceptional people in that world. Yeah, so you could be like a a rune master or, you know, like a minstrel was the healer. And I liked that consistency. But again, let's, let's talk about the other thing you just tried to segue into. I, I did try to segue into Larian Studios' Divinity Original Sin, which... Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's a very... I, I think it's fair to say it's an old-school-style CRPG, which is computer role-playing game for those that uh, were born after 1990. Um, 
and it, it's in that Baldur's Gate Neverwinter Nights style. Uh, Ultima has been thrown around a lot with this game. It's party based. It's top down. I get I get a very strong vibe of like old school CRPG combined with Fallout One and Two. Like the combat is very. It's 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 it feels less locked in than Fallout One and Two do, uh, which is just a product of the time. But uh, yeah, it's definitely. Like, you can't pause it like you pause Baldur's Gate, at least I don't, maybe in single player you can, I haven't played any by myself, but um, you don't really need to, because it's like, it's straight up like, it's your turn, now it's the enemy's turn, and you have a certain amount of action points and stuff. Yeah. So it, it plays very much like Fallout. Yeah, or Wasteland 2, if that's what you've been playing recently. Um, Mm-mm, that game is good. That game is good. I like that game more than Divinity, because Divinity stomps a mud hole in my ass every time I play it. <laughs> One thing Divinity is merciless about is terrain control, and that's something you don't see much of anymore. I think oh, that's yeah. probably one of the reasons it resonates so strongly with the old curmudgeons, you know, because, I mean, like, basically battlefield control is such a huge thing in this game. Uh, yeah. And all the different combinations, yeah. the way you can alter the terrain, that's something that, like, hasn't mattered for a while. Right, like, longer than I can remember. Like, I was telling you guys before, like, not like the terrain, the element of the terrain, the positioning of enemies. Like, if you jump into a fight at the wrong angle, you can get killed. It can make all the difference. Like, my my friends and I have been playing co-op, and we've had to fight a boss at a lighthouse. And so the boss is at the base of the lighthouse, and he can teleport and hit you, and then teleport back to where he was. So you have to get to him. But he has a ton of ads. So we ended up. I ended up like we kicked we kicked up enough fire, and then I made it rain on the fire to create like a steam storm. And then shot lightning into it to turn it into a lightning cloud, stunned all the enemies, and then teleported him next to the boss so he could take the boss on one on one. And I'm like, this kind of strategy, there. I don't know of any other game off the top of my head where that sort of like positioning would matter at all. Yeah. One I, of the great things. One of the great things too is that everybody, Divinity has been a very strong. Let me tell you this story about how I won this fight game. Yeah. And like everybody's story is very different. People bring these crazy strategies into it. Like very early on in the game. I realized I had gone completely the wrong direction, was absolutely out of my depth, and just ended up luring these enemies back to town where the <laughs> guards handled them for me while I hid and behind stacks of boxes that I had made. I <laughs> that mean, was, that and, was Dave's advice to me when I was having trouble with this game, was like, get the yeah, guards to do it for you. I was you. like, just get the guards to do the work. But I mean, like, <laughs> you know, that's one of the other things I kind of love about Divinity is the way that, it, you know, it's not afraid to let you, it almost feels like you're breaking things a lot you know, in the game. And that's one of the fun things about it. Like everybody in the game can be killed. You know, you can make absolutely crucial mistakes, you know, that, uh, that are make, that make things turn, uh, go in completely unexpected directions. And, you know, like a lot of these, a lot of games these days, you know, that so much time is spent on making sure that each of the encounters and experiences are the same. Whereas and, people are and, playing and Divinity perfectly in balanced. different ways. Yeah. Yeah, like, you can walk the wrong way in Divinity and get ambushed by level 10 enemies and you're dead. I completely screwed myself. Getting out of the main starting city, I happened upon, like, a mage and, a, and like, two or three warriors. Uh, and I was like, oh, this isn't too bad. Like, I can take that on. Like, the mage might give me some problems, so I can get it. I didn't notice that there were, like, three archers on the ridge with... I had zero way of attacking these guys, and they were just raining hellfire down on me. And as you guys were saying, like, that made me, like, put the game down. And then when I came back to it and I realized, well, instead of, like, going north straight into this hornet's nest of enemies, I could kind of, like, circle around east along a path and come up behind the archers. So there, 
it, it's a world where all of the uh, encounters are already kind of sort of predetermined, but like you guys were saying, you can happen upon them in different ways. And that will make a world of difference about whether or not you're going to survive the encounter. Yeah, Part like, of the fun there, too, is the experimentation with it, right? Like, you could theoretically have continued to just keep going the direction you were going and trying different strategies, but you, you know, you realized or decided that, like, that's not working for me. So I'm going to try and go this different direction. Right. Like, you know, like some people are actually using a tactic where they're basically trying to take out one enemy at a time and then fleeing the battle instantly because you can basically hop right back to town if you hit the flea button, you know, and you got to get everybody back or you're going to leave a corpse out there. But that's that's one way to do it. You know, everybody's kind of taking it, taking it, uh, you know, from different strategies and different angles. And, the you know, the co the spell combinations you can put together are really a are really a cool part of the game. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, like a lot of it works like. Sorry, in like such a way where like you know you'll be fighting and the enemies can take advantage of those spell combinations too. So like when you get into a fight with two mages and like a bunch of archers and melee dudes, like you need to take care of the mages or they're gonna just shred you. Like they're gonna blow everything up around you. You know they're gonna poison you and then blow up the poison. You know if you get stabbed and blood hits the ground, they can freeze the blood so you trip on it. Like yeah. it you know it's 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 a really cool system and what I like about it is it does feel a little more old school in the. It feels modern in that the systems are more sophisticated, but it feels old school in that rather than this really scripted type experience, like, you know, your Mass Effects and, you know, your Dragon Ages, at least Dragon Age 2 and probably Dragon Age 3, um, is that you just sort of have all these systems that work and the world is there and you are in the world and you can interact with it how you choose. Mm -hmm. Like, you get a, a little ways into the game, well, not a little ways, but like in a couple hours, you get these things, teleporter pyramids, that you and your other character have, which we should probably talk about, like, the role-playing of the characters. But so my buddy and I each have this pyramid, and if you use it, it instantly teleports you to the pyramid. Now, you don't have to keep it in your inventory, so you could, like, you know, if you want to bounce back and forth between, like, a shop and your pyramid, you could put it down at the shop, teleport back, then go back, or you can do really silly stuff with it, like... You can try to, like, put the pyramid in someone else's inventory so you can teleport to them. Yeah. Um, or you can accidentally drop it somewhere you're not supposed to be, and then, you know, you, you, if you're me, you teleport to your friend, and then all of a sudden you're surrounded by ogres. So what what I've found with this game, and it, it's a game that I very much respect, but I don't actually know how much more I can play of it because of my blood pressure. There's I, actually a tooltip that mentions uh, blood pressure in the game. <laughs> I really respect this game in so many ways, and I love the role-playing aspect of it, which Stephen was saying he wants to talk about, so we're going to get there, but I love those aspects of the game. What is affecting me, though, and my level of enjoyment is I don't feel like, and I, I have to word this carefully because I'm afraid you guys are going to jump down my throat, and I, I already know the, the argument that Dave's going to use. You have so much freedom for how you make your characters. And I've spoken before on the show that that really, it, it almost stresses me out a little bit. I like a little bit of direction at the start. The most famous story is when I first played Dragon Age Origins. I didn't think to make my mage, that was my first CRPG style game. I didn't think to make my mage characters crowd controllers. I thought, oh, it's like a JRPG. I can just make them pure damage dealers and everything will be fine. No, it's it's not you have Vivi. You need somebody that's going to like control the battlefield because that's going to completely affect it. So my brother-in-law was like smacking me upside the head like, what are you doing? You're getting all the wrong skills. And I was able to recover from that game. 
Divinity, though, because you don't have things like access to a ready-made skill tree, like you can't really plan out your skills as much. You have to go to a shop to, in that old-school manner of getting a spell book and then learning the spell after you've leveled up, and you have like 18 different categories of spells and stuff. There's well, five, but yeah. yeah. But you know what I mean. Like, there's so much freedom. There, there's so much freedom in this game that it's almost stifling to me. It's very intimidating to me. And there isn't, like, a ready-made wiki yet. I'm guessing that the community will jump all over that right now. But, like, there's a lot of stuff that's in that hearsay category right now, which is probably how people feel when they play <clears throat> Dark Souls the first time and they don't have any of that stuff yet. It's, um... It's very intimidating to me as a player, and I'm getting, I'm getting the feeling that four, four and a half, five hours into the game, I already have a broken party, and I need to restart, which is very frustrating to me as a player. That's not a condemnation of the game. That's just saying that my gameplay stylings, I like a little bit more direction, and this game is intimidating the crap out of me. I will have to say, I don't think your characters are broken. I think you might be misunderstanding them as broken, unless you know you put all your points into like. <laughs> yeah, there's two things I would say here. One thing is I am more sympathetic to that point of view than I used to be, only because there was a really interesting discussion on the message boards about this and how you know people talked about it in terms of you know free time and things like that. And obviously that's something I'm sympathetic to these days. You know, as we get older, but I will say that I do think that people jump to the conclusion that there is a right and a wrong way to play these games. Mm-hmm. A lot, uh, like I, I, I find that I, that that I still find a little bit puzzling. Like your example that you gave about, like you know, making sure making your mages crowd control. Well, you know, I call BS. You can totally win Dragon Age Origins with damage dealing mages. It's just That's might be a little, it just might be a little trickier. You mm-hmm. might need to try some other strategies. Right, right, right. You know, yeah, you like can if totally you're... win. You could, like there's no. You know, and I again, I think that like you know the age of wikis and like you know these ways, these optimized builds and everything like that. You know, that's that's all well and good, but to me personally, a lot of the magic of playing games is in discovery of the system. Sure, sure. That comes from that type of stuff. I don't think I've ever looked at a wiki. You know, I mean, I've sank probably as many hours into Torchlight Two as you've sunk into into Dark Souls, and I don't think I've ever looked at a wiki. Mm-hmm. on that yeah I, um, why would um, i like i enjoy going through and building the characters and divinity is another one of those games that strikes me as that way i have a feeling i'll be going back to that well over and over again just trying different things that's actually how i feel too i'm not a big wiki person um i like i i don't like it if i feel like i need to w- look at a guide to optimize my game mm-hmm. like i like playing it a little more like this is the kind of character i want to play as so that's how i'm going to play him yeah however i am i am also sympathetic to the fact that the way that games approach us and the way we approach games has changed so much you know in the last 10 15 years i mean just the discussion of the wolfenstein tutorial i mean we'll think about that for a second in-game tutorials really aren't that old of a concept either mm-hmm. you know i mean like this type of game like divinity would have just come with an instruction manual i mean there's like a little crummy like you know beginner dungeon but it barely prepares you in any meaningful way for what's going to come yep <laughs> you know so i think that that like and but you know to a certain school of gamers discovering how the game works was always part of the fun you just that's as long actually... as i know just as long as i know how to control the characters that's fine but don't hold my hand and explain to me how to play the game i don't want to know that i want to discover that for myself and i think that a lot a lot of games don't approach it that way anymore right there's a very correct way to do this or you're going to die mm-hmm. you know so 
just that's something actually, different. That's actually what I really like about Dark Souls, and again, why when, you know, for the first many times I played Dark Souls, I never looked at any guides, because I was like, I just wanted to talk to my friends. Oh, where did you find the Drake sword? Oh, you did Dark this, Souls or... is a great example, too, because there's a bunch of different strategies there, right? I mean, it's yeah. a game that I suck at, but, like, you, but I've heard the stories, you know, from Rob, from Steven, from other people, other friends of mine that play it, you know, like, and everybody kind of approaches it differently, and that's part of the joy of the game, is discovering these crazy strategies. Yeah. Divinity is much along those same lines. I would, I would definitely agree with you that it's along those same lines. I think my only... Uh, let me put it to you this way. I want to have that experimentation, but I'm at a point right now with Divinity where once you've gotten to like level 3 or 4, I think everybody's kind of suggesting that it be level 4, you can start to poke around outside the city. If you try to go outside the city when you're like level 1, level 2, you're going to get steamrolled, and you need to get like two more party members. You need to fill out your roster a little bit. One thing that I I do kind of feel is maybe a little bit of a gameplay slight at the game. Like I can I can admit when like okay I'm not geeing up with this I'm having problems. But one area I think they could have been a little bit friendlier is when you leave the city. There's kind of like a nice progression of mobs that you should go through to kind of level up at an even play at an even pace. I know Steven's going to make the argument. Well, if you head north, it's pretty obvious that that's the way you're supposed to go. But I felt like when I played New Vegas, Fallout New Vegas, where the game is telling me go out into the world and explore, but don't go here, 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 or here. You need to go here. Or you're gonna die. And now the, the other side of that is, well, then you have level scaling, Rob, and you hate level scaling. So, you know, you're kind of getting what you asked for. I think Divinity needs a little bit of a softer hand on your back to say, okay, you've only been playing this game for a few hours. You've maybe had one or two combat scenarios. If you've been staying in the town, you probably haven't hit that much combat. Maybe we should guide you. I found the lighthouse boss that Steven's talking about. I found him by accident as my second fight out of the town. And I was like, oh that's my... Pretty, that's a pretty distant way away from the town. I, I think... Have, I, I must I have... I am amazed been, that you, I, you must I, have... You also say that like it's... And this is always going to be the disconnect. You say that like it's a bad thing. Exactly. Like, it's not I mean, necessarily me a bad thing. Me to, like, if, you, if I had discovered that lighthouse boss as like my second combat, I would have been overjoyed despite the whooping I would have received. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, like, it's, and it's, that's just one of those one of those things, one of those it, taste things, right? Yeah, it's the Dark Souls argument of like, oh, if you go, and I, I know somebody like Derek just cringed a little bit, probably thinking that I was about ready to say it's the Dark Souls of turn-based games, but no, it's the Dark Souls argument of, well, if you go down to the graveyard at the start of the Firelink Shrine, you're going to get murdered. Like, don't go down there. I totally get that. I think what I need right now with Divinity is I need somebody like Steven or Dave to work with a little bit because I don't think my brain is picking up the game. Like something is misfiring in my head where like I'm not paying attention to everything that I could be paying attention to. So I don't know all the mechanics. So I'm getting worked. It's also a matter of learning it. And that's why we should play it because then if you're like, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm like, well, we won't go that way. Because I really don't feel like it's that strict when you leave town. Like there are directions where like if you go, you might run into a super strong enemy, but you could easily just go a little bit lefter and, you know, you'll avoid that fight. And that's what my friends and I have done. We've, we've avoided a lot of fights by using the sneak mechanic. Um, you know, and walk past hilarious them. and just a joy. Yeah, you yeah. mechanic. It, it, it is the least subtle thing ever. Like, your buddy is talking to somebody, you turn into a bush and just walk past him. Well, that or was... rob him blind. I mean, it's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Well, that was the, the other thing I really wanted to bring up um, 
two parts about Divinity that I love that we, we've spent so much time focusing on the combat, but I want people to realize that there's so much more to this game than combat. One is, is amazing. Yeah, uh, but one is that this whole game is co-op, which is like nuts. I mean, I it, and not co-op in the oh, we, we at Baldur's Gate we let you control one of the characters. No, you can't it, do anything. This is like both of you can talk to different people at the same time, go in totally different directions. Your friend can talk to someone and distract them while you rob them blind. But right. there are actual dialogue sequences that come up where you and your friend are talking and discussing what to do by picking dialogue choices in Baldur's Gate style. Well, this is the game that, uh, hey, Bethesda, if somebody's listening, this is what people wanted when they said they wanted a multiplayer Skyrim or Elder Scrolls game. This is what they had, in, uh, not an MMO. They wanted to adventure and roleplay together. That's what they wanted. And and that was the other thing I wanted to bring up, which is this isn't just about combat. This game is in many ways a top-down, for, for younger listeners, I have to use this analogy, but it's a top-down Elder Scrolls game where you have this wonder, wonderful environmental interaction. You can talk to every NPC. You can barter with every NPC. You can, you know, Steven's talking to the owner of this shop while you go around and just start picking paintings and stuff, and you're going to sell them on the black market like that emergent gameplay that dave is talking about is what has me going you know what this game's really frustrating me but there is this core of freedom with this game that it's almost unprecedented for anything outside of the elder scroll series in a lot of ways at the you know, unless you play, unless you played ultima yeah yeah, yeah that's kind of the beauty of it right is that everything this is this is a throwback game that feels new yeah but everything about this is appealing to the throwback sensibilities of you know ten years ago. Yeah, and it, it, that's part of the part of the joy of it for me is you know watching everybody kind of kind of get kind of get back in a little bit into this old style of gaming. And I think that too, uh, I know that you mentioned Rob, you know Wasteland Two coming up, and yep. you know we saw Pillars of Eternity and things like that. You know that there is kind of a kind of a renaissance in this type of game i think coming coming along here yeah and i think wasteland is more my style because it's a you know i spent a lot of time with that preview and my preview went up on the site um and i had to force myself to stop playing it because i was absolutely adoring it i think wasteland's a little bit more of my style because it's the combat is a little bit more straightforward i mean it is very much like you know shoot and it's fall it's fallout yeah it's it's fallout without you know having to worry about like poisonous gas that you can light on fire and like you know getting electrocuted and stuff like divinity and i think that's more my style and also i I will say that one thing that I don't like about Divinity, and I, I think that I might be a minority on this one, I, I really don't like the world. I like the humor, because it is it is wacky and really goofy, and I know Steven's going to love that. But so I, Actually, I was going to point out that I, I was about to say I really like the writing in the world. Uh, like It's fantasy world, but there's a lot of funny stuff. Like someone who tells you they're not a murderer, you break into their basement and they have a book, How to Plan the Perfect Murder. And it's a fully written book on how to execute a perfect murder. There's a guild that is a pyramid scheme. I mean, it's literally <laughs> yes, just a yes. pyramid scheme. I mean, it's <laughs> unbelievable. Like, that is hilarious. I, I, I think part of it is it's look, we certainly have our share of, you know, grimdark fantasy is like, you know, the, the in thing and has been for a while. It's just kind of refreshing to see something come along that doesn't take itself so seriously. I think that's that, that's part of the joy of it. But yes, I mean, you are correct. It is not it is not taking itself very seriously at all. And like, if that, the, the world is not going to appeal to everybody. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I would say it, 
I would say it doesn't take itself like joke seriously. Like it's just it's lighthearted. It's like Bald. It reminds me of Baldur's Gate, where silly stuff can happen. Like you could find pants that change your gender. Right. Like <laughs> you know, the, the whole game has had a very funny sense of humor. Like the pyramid scheme thing. Like the best part about that is you join them, and I was all excited. I was like, oh, I'm gonna get a new party member because they say they'll help you out. And then you slowly uncover the fact that nobody actually does anything. Oh yeah. All yeah. And then you can become complicit in it by recruiting three guys off the dock for experience. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's hilarious. Yeah, like, in fact, the, the questing is, that's another thing. We, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how I'm sick of the only interaction with the game being gather items, kill things. Uh, this is a game where the quests really do give you, like, a lot of, like, creative freedom. Like, they give you a murder mystery. You legitimately have to solve a murder mystery. It's not like oh, you just went to the quest marker. Like, you have to go to, like, ten different places in town and gather evidence and piece it together yourself to figure out where to go next. So if you like hand-holding, you're not going to like that. But, like, my friend and I were doing this quest, like, we were actually discussing, like, okay, so these are the suspects, this is the evidence we have, you know, what do we think next? And, you know, it was really exciting when we guessed right, figured out where to go, and then all of a sudden stumbled upon to a murderer. Yeah. Also, we accidentally blew up a dog, and I felt really bad about it. Well, I, I think Divinity is a really special game. I think it's going to come up a lot in Game of the Year discussions in a really surprising, refreshing manner. And you know what, guys? I, I definitely want to play it again with you guys as kind of like a guide a little bit. And I, I would say that that's, that's also a good thing for people that maybe are kind of in my category, that they don't have a lot of experience with CRPGs. You know, find a buddy that grew up on Baldur's Gate or Neverwinter Nights. They're probably really old and just like jaded about the entire world. <clears throat> Dave. And you find them and Are you jaded? <laughs> oh man. Have them find uh, find them and have them help you out a little bit because there is something really special here. I don't want people to think that I'm down on it and I don't like it. It's very much like it, it's like the first time I, I ever drank scotch and I was like, good God, why would anybody drink this? And then you start realizing that, no, this is this is quite a tasty beverage, and it's very enjoyable. Like, it, it's got volume to it. And I, I think Divinity is a really special game. And, and like Dave was saying, between this, Wasteland 2 in August, and then Pillars of Eternity, hopefully by the end of the year, there's a real resurgence of CRPGs. And it, it's great for younger gamers that have had no experience with these games so you know definitely go out there and give them a shot they're all pretty reasonably priced i think divinity is 40 bucks and that's been the best-selling game on steam for like three weeks which is awesome you can actually get it from green man gaming now for uh, 25 and then with a 20 percent off coupon you get it for 20 yeah so so and yeah, yeah like that's actually, that actually feeds into my point i made a couple of weeks ago too about kickstarter is bearing fruit finally like that first wave is really starting to come up and I don't like there have been some 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 misses with Kickstarter, you know, like with freaking uh, the Yogg's Cast game where they were like, yeah, we're not really responsible for compensating you, but we're good. Or the uh, what was it, uh, Shadow of the Eternals? The uh, yeah, we're making a new uh, Eternal Dark Darkness game. Please give us money. Yeah, well, but in this case, like we're getting a lot of these games coming out finally that are all like like look at Shovel Knight. Shovel Knight is universally adored, pretty much. Uh, for providing like a style of game that publishers are not going to take a chance on anymore, but it's ridiculous because they get so much critical love yeah. and sell well. So I feel like that's you know with Ubisoft with like Child of Light, I feel like you're going to start to see more of that as these Kickstarter games come out and are pleasing people. Like I had no idea Divinity was even a thing because I hated Divine Divinity and haven't followed that series since then. So like for that all of a sudden like in like a span of a day, I'm hearing like how amazing this game is and I picked it up. 
I'm like, wow, this game came out of nowhere, and I love it. I haven't like I you don't get that feeling much anymore, especially when you write about RPGs. Yeah. And One of the great things it does have going for it is the expectations, I think, were a lot lower than yeah. some of these other stuff coming out. And the mm-hmm. experience is so far above what the expectation was. And that always helps. You know, that yeah, always definitely. helps in the game's ratings. Mm-hmm. Well, I think as we segue from Divinity and we're talking about kind of lower expectations leading to something pretty special in the community, I don't think you could have expectations any higher right now for Destiny. I think we've had a complete 180 degree turn from remember about a month before e3 they had a big destiny uh preview and almost every preview i read coming out of that thing was like yeah it's not really good it's kind of boring we don't really know what it is and now the internet is just everybody is talking about it i'm actually playing i've been playing it the whole time this game has exploded like Good God, you want to talk about marketing money, about expectations, like, this is starting to become, like, you know, the return of the king, like, that movie came out and the world just kind of stopped for a few minutes while everybody just went out and did this thing. Now, Steven, you've played more Destiny, you've played in the alpha, I still haven't played it, but I gotta admit, like, the hype train is starting to get to me right now. What do you think? Is this game... Is this game going to do what games like um, Hellgate London, and I, I would say to a lesser that's a, that's a, that is a rough game to start with in your list. Well, no, but but what I'm going to say is like Hellgate London wanted to like make the Diablo game in first person. I think Borderlands was a much more successful game at that by losing the MMO aspect and by making it you know four player co op or whatever. It, personality. Yeah, it, it well debatable on the personality, but whatever. Uh, but is Destiny? Is it that big a deal? Is is it really? And I'm not saying that as a jaded person. I'm just asking as as an outsider looking in. Is Destiny all that right now? Destiny feels like a very big game. Like playing it, you get like you definitely get a sense of the weight of how much money and time and effort and just thought cost has gone into this. Um, I really like it. And I don't like Halo. And it plays like the core shooting feels like Halo. It's floaty sci-fi shooty type stuff um i don't like halo but most people seem to so but i really like this game for a lot of reasons i i i question whether or not it will be as successful as like you know call of duty or halo simply because it's more of an rpg like it's very very it feels like sort of a fusion between like an elder scrolls and diablo Mm-hmm. Or, or Torchlight for for Dave's present company, and uh, <laughs> oh, thanks. But, but like, they, they it was weird because at first it was like, wait, is it is it an RPG or is it not? And like, this is a very stat driven, um, you know, go out exploring kind of game. It's not a go into the map and fight all the bad guys through the corridor and finish. Um, like there are missions where that works, but that's no different than say Final Fantasy fourteen or Warcraft where you have an instance, like your story missions are like, you'd be level 7 to undertake this story mission, and it's a like a scripted run through a certain area of the game with cutscenes and boss battles and all that, um, which are great fun too. Um, and then there's like strikes, which are sort of like special missions that aren't really related to the story, but they flesh out the world, and like, you know, it'll say like, bring three people into this strike, and you know, you go through a sequence with like usually a boss battle and a lot of like special fights, and then there's, you can just go land on one of the planets and run around exploring and doing side quests. Um, this, there's the city area, which has, you know, all kinds of customization and gear and crafting and whatnot. Um, 
And then there's the Crucible, which is like the PvP. Like, you go to this world, and, you know, you get put into a map like Mars, and you fight, you know, capture the flag, that sort of thing. And you can choose to do it with, you know, your level and your equipment having an effect, have it not having an effect. Um, so it feels very much like an MMO, but not nearly as grindy. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, that could change in the full game. And they've said when the game comes out, they want it to play. They want their end game to be similar to your Diablos and your Torchlights, where, you know, you're hunting down better gear and doing that sort of thing. And in that regard, that's why I definitely would consider it more of an RPG, because... Again, you shoot a guy in the head, you'll do more damage, you'll crit him, but you're not going to insta-kill him if you're below his level if your gear sucks. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you, you got to have a better weapon. Um, I would say this one feels like a better... Like, I love Borderlands very much, but this one feels like it has better shooter mechanics than Borderlands. Yeah, you said that before on our last episode, actually. You were very positive on the shooting. Yeah, like, it, you know, it feels great. Um, there's a Even in the beta, there's a big variety of guns, and they tease you and show you stuff you can't equip in the beta... But you can still get it and look at it. Um, you know, I'm just I'm I'm really high on the st- style of game it is. You know, like the, I'm legitimately kind of interested in the plot. Uh, like the world is like really interesting sci-fi. Like you know, some people don't like Bungie's brand of sci-fi, but I I actually think it's one of their strengths. Um, the music's fantastic, and you know, it's I I I'm sort of hardwired to say, oh, it's an RPG. It's not going to blow up the world, but it's not really being marketed as one. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're actively avoiding calling it an RPG, even though it's totally a Borderlands-style game, just with more open-worldiness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's cool, you know. Like you could like you start out in space, and you know you get your spaceship. You go land on the planet, like in the beta, there, it's Earth, and you're in old Russia, which has sort of been wiped out. And you know you could land on the planet, and you see all the other people playing. Like you know, there's other people running around doing quests and doing stuff. Um, and, you know, you could end up doing, like, you know, a, a dropship could come in from the enemy forces and drop a boss in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, everybody around is helping you fight this boss. And it's, like, really good shooter gameplay as opposed to Borderlands, which was okay shooter gameplay but with good RPG elements. Mm-hmm. This this feels like it's a better balance of the two. And it actually has more equipment than Borderlands and more, like, skill tree customization. So, you know, it, it could possibly... If you like Borderlands, it's certainly worth giving it a shot. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. You talked about the um, the Bungie sci-fi. I really, really like their uh, individual human characters. I, I like the kind of um, it, it's almost sci-fi knights in a way. Uh, you know, flowing capes and stuff over battle armor. I really like that. Yeah, you're definitely in the you know heroic knight type thing. Yeah, but golly, I cannot stand the enemy design. It, you know what it looks like to me? It looks like... Do you guys remember that animated show, The Mighty Ducks? That show was awesome. No, uh, Think about the enemies on that show. Really? You liked that show? Yeah, you would like that show. Uh, I, I think the enemies just look like crustaceans. I, I just... I don't well, like their enemies. If it makes you feel any better, you're never looking at them closely enough to see that. Okay. I really don't like the characters. I, I've never liked the antagonists in Bungie games. I've always thought the... I like the look of their future. I like the look of their guns, but I, I think what you're shooting is maybe it's the HR Giger in me. Like that's God rest his soul. That's like what I grew up with in terms of alien design and stuff. But these guys just look like you know generic Saturday morning cartoon villains, and I just I I don't care what I'm shooting, and maybe that's okay. Well, there's also a big variety to the number of enemies too. Like you know. You fight machines and stuff like that. You fight the Fallen in the Hive, which are kind of your garden variety Halo enemies. 
Oh, yeah. like, you know, there's, I did a, a boss battle last night where you're fighting this giant floating eyeball, and it's like, oh, okay, it, A, it's an awesome fight, but B, it's just, it's really dramatic and feels, it feels like mystical sci-fi executed at a level that only this budget can kind of do. Oh, cool. One thing I've been, this game wasn't even remotely on my radar in terms of anything I'd be interested in. But what actually uh, kind of got me interested in it, besides you know Stephen talking about it and some of the other folks on the board, is that there's been a pretty good job lately on some of these uh, Twitch type game, Twitchy type games that you know guys like me suck at. But like <laughs> I've really enjoyed Titanfall, like for example, you mm-hmm. know, like because that's a game where even if you're terrible, you can still kind of contribute. You know what I mean? Like you can get good at a certain thing, and like you know you're still you can still score some points for your team even if you're not the best guy. And they match, they do a really good job matching it up so that there's other guys that suck on the other guy's team just like you. And you can even run around and, you know, kill the stupid drones if you want to. Like, uh, Destiny sounds like there's enough stuff in it where, depending what, regardless of your skill level, you can still kind of participate in the game in a, in a really fun way. Yeah, like, it, it's not quite like Titanfall where it's like arena-based shooting unless you're in the PvP areas, which in that case it's like playing, you know, Halo, but with equipment, and you're invested in the character you're building, so I think it's got a little bit more uh, grab to it. Um, but yeah, it, it, it plays much more like a role-playing game, you know, or like, you know, think of like Skyrim, but with guns and actual shooter gameplay rather than the Fallout turn-based type stuff. Um, but yeah, like, it, you know, it, it feels very, like the game does a great job of introducing you to elements, at least in the beta, and... Uh, you know, like, you get you get into small teams. Like, you can be with a lot of people, but then, you know, you could create a party with just your friends, and you guys could go around exploring and doing stuff. And, like, you definitely, like, I was a much lower level than the two friends I was playing with, and I still felt like I was contributing. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's definitely one that, uh, that I'm looking forward to. And I wasn't even thinking about it a few weeks ago. Yeah, well, I think they've, they've done a really good job of getting people's attention, too, lately. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to get the... Uh... There's the limited edition, which, you know, I, I got to admit, I, I don't need the, like, ghost model that comes with the $150 edition. I've, I've got a lot of crazy crap on my desk at school, which I, I love, and I, I have my little Geralt statue there now, and I love him. I don't need that, but I kind of like how they're doing the uh, the limited edition, the $100 one, because they're giving you a lot of cool lore stuff, which is the, the stuff that I, you know, I love Broken Futures. I love the kind of, like, apocalypse, but this is sci-fi apocalypse, which makes it a little different, and I like that. So I like kind of the cool extras that you get with this, but then they're also packing in the DLC, which is already $35 worth of content, so it's kind of paying for itself when you think about it. And if this is a DLC-run game, which they've talked about, like they want the Destiny franchise to live on for 10 years, that's a really good incentive, and I think that that's something that more and more developers need to look at. It's not you know, the alien isolation thing of like, hey, if you pre-order our game, you get this thing that you'd probably really want, and we're not going to tell you even if we're going to sell it after the fact. Bungie is being clear and upfront. This is $35 worth of content that you're getting for free if you buy the game now. The more yeah. you spend, the more you save, Rob. I know, and I learned that today when I bought a lot of furniture for our house. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that that's the... That, to me, is the way to do pre-order incentives or limited editions. I think that's the right way to do it. You know, they're they're not... They're being upfront with you about the cost. Like, if I find out... Well, the thing uh, is, you know exactly how much you're spending, you know what you're going to get. Yeah, with, with the alien isolation thing that 
garnered a lot of rage across the internet to hold back the fact that they're reuniting the entire cast of Alien, with the exception of Ian Holm, who didn't do any uh, voice recording. They're reuniting the entire cast to do this DLC, which is really awesome, but you don't know how long it is. You don't know all that it entails. They're holding it back for pre-orders. They're saying they're going to sell it after the fact. There are so many unknowns that you don't even know if it's worth it at this point. And you also don't know if you really are going to like the game anyway. So... You know, there isn't a beta. Like, for Destiny, there's a beta right now. Like, you can play the game, and they're giving out codes, it seems like, with McDonald's Happy Meals right now. Like, I have, I have two codes still. Do you have like, a PS3 code? Because I would use that. No, like, I, only, okay. I only have PS4 codes. Well, I'll probably get my PS4 in August anyway. But, like, that, it, people are getting to experience this game, so I think it's easier for them to drop a dime on it. I, I have a hard time, even though I'm excited for Alien... I don't want to drop a dime on a pre-order right now on something that, A, might not be very good, B, I don't know what the content is, C, I don't know if the content, how much it's going to be later. There's too many unknowns, and I think that Bungie's doing a very good job of being upfront with what they're offering. So, Destiny. Destiny's a big deal, and uh, I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about it. I just don't want to burn out on it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Speaking of... Uh, of burnout. I am the master of the segue today. I gotta say, I'm doing a doing a good job there. We're gonna talk about burnout paradise. No, um, Stephen, I, I think I'm, I think I'm Dark Souls doubt. I, I I don't understand the statement. I I I got the uh, DLC for Dark Souls Two, uh, the Sunken Crown, Sunken King, whatever the hell it's called, and I gotta say, I am I'm really not digging on it. And I, I think that it's, um, if I remember correctly, we, we talked before about if Dark Souls becomes an annual franchise or if you get one every two years. It's now so clear to me why they did not announce Bloodborne back at TGS last year, which is apparently where they showed that two-minute good lord demo for the game that was just like the best thing I've ever seen. Bloodborne is new. Bloodborne is a different gameplay styling. It's more offensive-based. It's more freedom of movement. It's a different era. Dark Souls 2 is more Dark Souls, which is great. And I really like Dark Souls 2. But as I'm playing this DLC, I'm like, you know what? I kind of want to see the next idea with this franchise. I want to see development. I want to see it move forward. I don't want to keep playing the same game over with a roster update. And I think the Dark Souls DLC is kind of showing me why uh, Miyazaki is being so hard about pushing Bloodborne and pushing them into a new area. You know, it was kind of intimidating to go, hey, we're not really going to do sword and shield combat anymore. We're going to incentivize you to get in there and start attacking. And I was like, oh, God, that's really crazy. And then I start playing this Dark Souls 2 DLC, and I'm like, yeah, I've kind of been circle strafing with my giant shield up for about 300 hours now if I put together all my time with demons dark souls one and dark souls two i think i'm kind of done and i think it's time for something new i don't know whether we cue like a funeral dirge or the <laughs> hallelujah <laughs> it's funny because this dlc is it's doing some cool mechanical ideas so there's uh there's more environmental interactions like pedestals that you can raise and lower to give you more uh environmental uh incentives to kind of like play around they do some cool stuff with pressure plates in terms of traps and also there's like a couple indiana jones style moments where you're not sure how to lift a door and there's a pressure plate somewhere that you gotta press they're doing some cool things there uh the enemies are a little more unique there's one that uh kind of has a poison aura around it so you 
have to kill it really fast, but it's tough. There was another enemy that you can't damage it until you do something in the environment, kind of a la the uh, new Londo Ghosts. That was really cool. But I'm playing through this DLC, and it, the level design is not that great. There's very. I got to the first boss encounter, and it's very uninspired. It's just three red phantom-style enemies, which are the most broken enemies in Dark Souls. They don't respond properly. They ignore your attacks. They can break animation frames. I brought it up before. They're terrible enemies to fight, and they're all over this DLC. You're fighting humanoid enemies that, you know, you wait for them to attack, and then you go in for the kill. You're fighting some insect-style enemies. It's just... It's like they've run out of ideas, and um, I bring this up uh, because I was playing a lot of Okami with Jackie. Uh, she's playing Okami HD right now, and Jackie gets really stressed out on certain parts of the game, and so she'll call me in to play through them. And that's not an indictment of female gamers or anything like that. Uh, I let me get that clear right there. That's not me being sexist. She I wasn't asked. Even thinking that until you brought it up. I, I know, but like I, I don't want somebody to be like, oh man, that's because girls can't play video games. No, 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 no. Uh, Jackie is not a big time gamer, but I'm gonna get her through the evil within. She just doesn't even realize it yet. She's gonna play that game through on hard. I don't care. Wow, it sounds like you're really doing that for her. <laughs> but like. I'm playing Okami, which is a game that I really like, but I'm playing all the crappy sections of Okami, like the digging mini-games, or the awful platforming sections. And it's coloring my impression of the game. Like, I'm playing this content that is not very fun, and it's making me question whether or not I really like Okami, and I love that game. Playing this Dark Souls DLC, which I don't think is very good level design compared to what else is in the game, but since this is the focus of the DLC, it's actually coloring my impressions of a game that I really, really liked. And I'm I'm going, I don't like this game that much. I actually went back and started replaying old areas, and I'm like, oh, I love this stuff. Like, it's hard, it's challenging, it's inspired, it's fun. This DLC really doesn't feel that good. The, the start of the Artorias of the Abyss DLC was a massive boss fight with a lightning-shooting griffin that was out to make your life miserable. They then follow that up with the best boss fight in all of Dark Souls, which is the Artorias boss fight. That thing is a monster. He's so good. And this is just completely blasé by, by comparison. It's like, I don't even know why I'm playing it. It just it feels like filler. It feels like the essence of filler content, and I, I'm just like, you know, I'm done with this. And so, so Dave, my question to you is like, have you ever reached a point where you've just had enough of a particular style of game? And if so, like, what do they need to do to kind of shake it up? Like, what do you, what, can you think of some examples of like a franchise that you got tired of, but then they went in and they just said, okay, we're going to change this stuff around to get you back involved? Like, what, what do you do here? That's a really good question. Uh, you're described so that you're saying that the they followed up the Dark Souls of Dark Souls DLC with the Okami digging mini game of <laughs> DLC. Yeah, it, basically. It, yeah, exactly. You know, I don't. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's it's tricky because I mean, like, you know, I'm always making jokes about Diablo, right? Like, I was a huge fan of Diablo one and two. Yeah. But not a huge fan at all of Diablo three. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you like. It's I think it's just a I think it's probably just a matter of 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 taste. And, you know, and it might be simply a matter of the fact that you're going back and playing 
Dark Souls, other pre earlier sections and enjoying it could this could just be a case of bad content, you know, and the yeah. next piece of content comes out as good, you know. So I guess they can't hit home runs all the time. Yeah, and it's also tough because I'm playing it in a vacuum right now. The only people that have access to it, because we're, we're still two days from release, but the only people that have access to it are press, and I would assume people at From Software and maybe other people that got it for whatever reason. So I'm kind of missing the best aspect of Dark Souls, which is the multiplayer. Yeah, the multiplayer, I was going to say. that That's that's a key piece. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's something you've always enjoyed about it. So. Yeah. So, so maybe when, like, that's why I'm going to hold back my review for, like, a day or two after release, because I, I think maybe when people join up, like, there's one enemy in the game that, Dave, I just can't beat this guy. Like, it's a flame mage that just completely ignores every attack you do to him. Like, I, he just fireballs your ass and kills you, and he's super fast and super aggressive, and it's like, well, unless I have helpers... I'm not going to be able to get through this. Right. So, and, and it kind of made me remember that when people were talking about Dark Souls 2 and they, you know, people had reviews out the day the game came out and that was before the multiplayer component worked. And I was the one saying, I don't think you can review this game until you play it with multiplayer because it completely changes the dynamic. Things that were maybe impossible before are now completely doable and very, very fun with other people. So I'm almost wondering if maybe like my negative impressions of this DLC right now will go away once I get people to play. Especially it kind of harkens back to the conversation we were having earlier in this podcast, which is, you know, there's different, there's different types of gamers, right? You know, some gamers really like to have uh, kind of a game plan or at least a, a blueprint for kind of how to approach certain, certain encounters in a game or character builds and things like that. You know, with something as challenging as dark souls is, uh, like I could see it being very, very frustrating if uh, you know you just got to a point where you couldn't progress. I mean, for me, like that was like the very first fight, and I, when I couldn't get out of the castle, in, like the original <laughs> Dark Souls. So I mean, you know, that's that's a bad, uh, bad benchmark. But if I, but the point being, I could, I can go on and I can find some YouTube videos and get some guidance there. Like you really can't do that right now with this DLC, and maybe, maybe you just need to wait and see what the what happens when other people are playing it. Yeah, I think I'm going to give it a day or two, and, and maybe I'll come back very, very happy. Maybe the final boss, like, I know what the boss is at the end of this DLC, and I'm not that I'm not really digging on it, honestly. I, I don't think it's going to be that great, but mm. I, I think that it's just the, the fact that almost every enemy in Dark Souls 2 is humanoid, the fact that most of the boss fights are pretty... Uh, uh, uninspired. Big knight with big weapon. Yeah, it's it's always <laughs> circle strafe and big knight with big weapon. There isn't anything like the gaping dragon. There isn't anything like, you know, as much as I hate the four kings, that is a memorable ass boss fight. It really is. There's there's nothing that has nothing that. like Magnus, Lord of the Abyss. Uh, isn't it Manus, not Magnus? Manus, yeah. 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 There's nothing like that. And then, like, in the five-minute, uh, in the ten-minute demo that we saw of Bloodborne, it was like, oh, all that really inspired level design and amazing enemies and just overall atmosphere. Oh, yeah, apparently that went into this game over here that we're not getting till February. Like, Dark Souls 2 is a it's a very, very good game. I would even make the argument it's a great game. I really enjoy it, but it's missing a spark. And I think this DLC feels a little rushed. It feels a little tepid. And maybe it's going to be one of those things like 
when you get all three pieces, it's a progression. Like the first episode's kind of getting you ready. The second one does something completely different. And the third one's just absolutely insane. You know, maybe you're going to fight Orstein and Smo again. But for right now, I can't recommend this as a single purchase. Could I, this be the end of an era? Not You can't recommend a Dark Souls piece of content on day one. Yeah, I mean, and and even the way you access the content is really lame. Like, when they put Artorias in, back into Dark Souls, because it was cut content. If you look at the Design Works book that I own, they have, like, pictures of Artorias on the cutting room floor. That was stuff that was supposed to be in the game. So, like, there's a character, there's an NPC that you talk to that has no bearing on the original Dark Souls, but opens up the Artorias of the Abyss DLC once you buy it. In this, they just give you an item in your inventory, and there's a new door that you go through. It's like, what? And it and it's a door at the bottom of a random boss fight. Like, it, it wasn't there before. It's not like this was a piece of the game that it, it was very clearly cut, but there's still, like, remnants of it there. It's just an addition, and it feels like an unnecessary one in a lot of ways. Again... Maybe two more episodes down the road, it's going to fill in all the gaps. But for right now, it just kind of feels like, ah, it's another level in Dark Souls. Yeah, Yeah, that's kind of the problem. Like, I haven't finished Dark Souls 2 yet, and not because it's not good, but, like, the level design is kind of really important, and it feels very prosaic in 2. So I'm not really jumping at the chance to play more, because I haven't even finished what I have. Yeah, and and the one thing I'll say for Dark Souls 2... Even though the level design is not as uh, it, it isn't as big of a point as Dark Souls One, what they did was they spaced out the bonfires in such a way that you're constantly seeing new content. You actually don't repeat a lot of sections in Dark Souls Two, and I like that because I like seeing all these new areas. This DLC feels like whoever was designing the bonfire placement was out to lunch because I have been repeating the same sections over and over again that I am now so frustrated with it. And there's another caveat I have to make here is that I'm playing this on New Game Plus, which is not the right way to experience new content like the first time around because you're dealing with super hard enemies that you're still figuring out how to fight. So that's definitely an aspect of this that's maybe driving me up a wall. But like, Stephen, Dave, I'm repeating like half-hour sections over and over again fighting enemies that I don't want to fight. Like it, And it's not that I don't want to fight them because they're hard. I don't want to fight them because they're tedious. Like These guys have no chance of killing me. It's just I have to keep fighting them over and over again. And that's the one thing about Dark Souls 2 that I really liked was the bonfire placement was generous, so you were constantly seeing new environments. I really like how they handled that. This feels more like Demon Souls, where I started to get a little tired of seeing the same enemies over and over again and it's like okay i got through these three guys oh god the fourth guy got me okay now i got through these four guys oh a trap got me okay now i got through these four guys and a trap got me and now i get to the boss fight oh the boss killed me the first time like that it's really it's a little grating i i don't i can't recommend this right now i can't so you heard it here first listeners rob can't recommend dark souls it confirmed. Done. Confirmed. I'm done. I'm done until Bloodborne comes out. And also, apparently... another news: Final Fantasy 15 is coming out. <laughs> <laughs> also, Bloodborne is apparently coming out in February. Good God! Like, 
Yeesh. And it's going to be playable at Gamescom. Anyone, uh, anybody want to go to Germany? Always, yes. I, I just think it's time for the formula to change, and I think Miyazaki... I'm so happy to hear that this is the game that he's doing, because I think he got it. I think he got that, like, okay, we could t- keep doing these sword and shield fantasy games over and over again, but we could also take the formula in a new direction. And I I really like that. And at the even if it doesn't work, at the very least, I think we all know that it, it's time for Dark Souls to change a little bit. It, it's time to do something, so... We'll leave it at that. Uh, I don't know. I'll I'll give a report when I get the other pieces of DLC, but for right now, it's kind of a no. Uh, Also kind of a no, I I was really disappointed. I read the... um, Let me uh, bring up the name of the author real quick uh, so I don't butcher it. Uh, There was a book that was in... uh, Stay a while and listen. I have to type and talk at the the same time. Um, There was a book that was released uh, about the development of Diablo, and you can buy it on Kindle and eBook, and it's by uh, David Craddock. It's called Stay a While and Listen, and it's uh, book one of a supposed series about the development of Diablo and Blizzard North. And it's an interesting read. There's a lot of tidbits in there that you probably know if you were big into the Diablo development cycle and, and you kind of like listen to a lot of reporters and stuff. But the book is written in such a way that it is very much documentary style with lots and lots of quotes. It's like every paragraph is followed by a quote from a developer. This would have worked way better as a movie, honestly. Like as a book, it's not pleasant to read. It's shifting back and forth in voice and narration so often that it becomes confusing there's so many names being thrown around that you're like if you if you had a a face to go with the voice whenever you have like that documentary like somebody sitting there in a chair talking to you it would work so much better and i'm not saying like oh i don't like this because it's not a movie i'm saying that i don't think the format was right i think it should have been more written from the author's perspective rather than quote after quote after quote from all of the makers of the game it it feels like a movie script instead of a book there's some cool stuff here and there but overall i i can't really recommend this either it was it was kind of a blah read i finished it in like three or four days and i didn't it, it wasn't nearly as interesting you know you're talking about the development of one of my favorite video games of all time so and you were uh, just you were very down on your favorite series today I, I know I'm being kind of hard, but like, it, I, I think it's just a, a conscious choice that they that this author clearly had access to people like Brian Fargo, who is now working on Wasteland Two. You know, he talks about the fact that they came close to buying uh, Condor, the guys who became Blizzard North. You know, there, there's so many really cool stories, but the fact that you're getting them all from quotes rather than the development of a narrative from the author. It's very jarring to get like so many different voices talking in your head and not even to know who the hell is speaking until the end of the quote. So it, it, it just doesn't feel like the right venue. I don't know if you guys are interested in reading it. I, I have a couple books. I also have Masters of Doom, and then I have Console War to read. I want these books. I, I think video game development is such a cool idea. Like, the indie game, the movie was amazing. That was an awesome experience as a film. You Except know, for Phil Fish, but yeah. You know, even Phil Fish in that, I, I got a sense of who he was as a person, and he actually makes sense to me now as an individual. He's not this nebulous internet troll. I actually get what he is, and I get his passion for his craft. But stay a while and listen. I think the format needed to change. If you were going to write a book, I think it should have been more book and less documentary style. 
but it, it's interesting. It's ten bucks on ebook. If you if you really, maybe you'll like it more than me. But it, it just didn't it didn't grab me that much. Kind of. A, I don't I don't support ebooks. I don't either. I like having a physical book, but Jackie has a Kindle, so I I just put oh, it on geez. that. I got nothing but ebooks now. I need a book. I, I, I like gave having away, gave, gave away all my old uh, hard copy books and. I'm all ebook. Who would have thought that the oldest guy on the podcast right now would be the one advocating for technology and shit? Clutter, man. Don't want to deal with it. I'm like, the opposite. Like... I'm like the opposite of a hoarder. I throw things out just because. See, and I love having... See, I like looking at all my books. So do I. I, I love do having too. a bookshelf. They're, they're on a device I have called the Kindle, <laughs> and they're all there. They're not books. They're just data. Speaking data. of the creation of Diablo, we will have a very interesting interview coming out soon on RPG Fan with... Uh, David Brevik, who is one of the designers on Diablo, and he talks about how Diablo used to be uh, a turn-based game. Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, and I'm sure that came up in the book. Yeah, but, uh, you know, look for that. They're, they're pushing. Uh, he's he's the head of uh, the studio that does Mar- that did Marvel Heroes, which is a free-to-play action role-playing game. But we'll, we'll be getting that uh, interview up shortly. Oh, I didn't realize we had interviewed him. So that that's actually pretty awesome. And yeah, that that was some of the cool stuff was them talking about it, like how much uh, uh, Brevik was talking about how much he want he was pushing hard for Diablo to be turn based. He was like, nope, 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 not going to be turn based, not going to be turn based. And then the first time they tried it real time, he was like, oh, yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was like, oh, that actually was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, like walking up to a skeleton and smashing it was pretty awesome. So that was cool. Um. Uh, I guess, Stephen, uh, since we're talking about relevant things, you want to talk about Castlevania Dawn of Sorrow? I always want to talk about Castlevania Dawn of Sorrow. <laughs> I, mean, I actually just switched to playing that. It's, uh, you know, it's an older game, but I figured we could talk a little bit, a little new, a little old. So it's the first DS one. It's the sequel to Aria Sorrow, which is the last Game Boy one, which is the one with Soma Cruz. It's the one that takes place in the slight future, 2035, which functionally just means that there are cars in the background sometimes and you can get guns as weapons. And, man, I really wish we were getting a new Castlevania that was like this. It's just, the kind of level design, it's just, it's so easy to pick it up and play it and enjoy it. Finding secrets is great. I, I think the Of Sorrow Castlevania games are the best ones because of the souls. Like, it makes every enemy worth fighting. And just, it gives you such a breadth of different skills to have and, like, things to do like you know oh you get the soul of the of the skeleton chef and then you could throw curry on the ground and that summons the sasquatch so that way you can get his soul so that way you can jump into the background somewhere else like it's just it's such cool like non-essential gameplay and like this kind of level progression i'm glad that you know with like chasm and time spinner we're going to start seeing these kinds of games thanks to kickstarter because this is a style of game i just wish we had more of like i think ego left konami which is fine, because Konami doesn't make anything that doesn't involve giant nuclear tanks and soccer balls anymore. But, like... You know, and it's, and it's not that I don't... It's not that I don't like... It's not that I don't like Metal Gear, and it's not that I have anything against soccer games, but, like, they kind of don't make anything but that now. Like, at E3, they didn't even have a booth, if I recall. Yeah. And, like, you know... I get it. Lords of Shadow 2 was not a success. Lords of Shadow 2 was pretty good, and that's fine, and I'm willing to play those kinds of games, but, like people want this sort of game like i mean look at kickstarter like every time a game that's like a metroidvania comes up in kickstarter it is immediately a success yeah like 
look at Mighty Number no. Nine. Capcom's like, oh, you know, people don't want to buy Mega Man, and then you know it it makes five million in in Kickstarter. So I'm like, clearly people want it, and clearly there's enough interest that they're like making a freaking Mighty Number no. Nine cartoon and stuff. And like, you know, I know there's a lot of people that would like to see a new Sweet Code, and like that would be great. But this kind of Castlevania is just really compelling. Like it's just it it's it's cool. Like that sort of old school cheesy horror you know like you go into the chapel or you know you fight the evil you fight death like it's it's a kind of style that's really not around anymore where like you know it's the sort of gothic horror type of game and i like i just everything about it i'm playing i'm like man this is just utterly compelling and like i know i remember back when order of ecclesia came out there was like all the reviews were like oh man they're making too many of them of the symphony of the night style castlevanias now they're boring you know, then they stopped making them, and now everyone's like, we'd really like some of those Metroidvania-style Castlevanias again. Well, I think the the other thing to keep in mind, and we've talked about this up and down, and I'm glad Dave's on the podcast right now because he can speak to it. He loves talking about financials when it comes to games. It's all about how you price the game, and I think that people are very willing to part with 15 or 20 bucks on these Kickstarter games or on these early access games on Steam. I'm looking at my Steam wish list and it's just filled with games that are like 15 or 20 bucks that I'm more than willing to take a chance on. I think the problem is that develop uh, publishers are having a hard time seeing the forest through the trees right now they want to make call of duty money with every release remember very famously the talk about the new hitman and tomb raider selling below expectations and about how bad that was but they're not seeing the fact that if you price the game aggressively and if you maybe don't spend the millions of dollars on a huge uh, ad campaign or spend millions of dollars on multiplayer that nobody's interested in, and is or not be afraid to have your game not appeal to a giant market. Which right. I get. I get that you know you want it to appeal because you want to make money, but when you when you homogenize it, you actually start alienating people. Yeah. Like you're gonna pick up the casual dude who might not have bought it, but you're not gonna you, you know you're not gonna appeal to people who want an interesting experience. You know that's why I don't really care for the new Tomb Raider because I've played a hundred million. Slightly open world, slightly progression oriented shooters. Like I've 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 played them all. Like yeah. it's it it all it does nothing new, and yeah. you know it's not that I have a problem with with something not doing anything new, but I don't know. It's like I'm asking for an old style of game as I'm saying, you know. Well, yeah, I mean the one thing I'll it. say is that you, we do forget, I think, in the position we're in, that for every successful Kickstarter. There are 50 that bomb. Yeah. For every successful Kickstarter, that there is nine out of ten of them, those are all the copies of that game that they will ever sell. Mm-hmm. Is what they sold on Kickstarter. And so you know, yes, there are exceptions, and those exceptions make headlines, mm-hmm. and they're the ones that we talk about, and they're the ones that we do reviews on, and they're the ones that capture the imagination, you know, of people that keep flooding to Kickstarter, but. You know, there for just for just as many of those, there's all kinds of weird ideas out there that you know get four hundred thousand, and that's it. That's all the games they're going to sell. Mm-hmm. And there's also an element of certain games and certain types of games are very successful on Kickstarter right now. We talked about the CRPGs. Stephen mentioned the yeah, without uh, question. There's nostalgia, yeah, factor being played into on Kickstarter, right? And like the the Castlevania, Metroidvania style games are doing great, but at the same time, I'm seeing 
time and time again that these uh, kind of horror games or these games that are kind of in the vein of Deus Ex or uh, or System Shock, those are having a really hard time getting funding. So there's a nostalgia quality, but we're seeing it at like the 2D Metroidvania or Mega Man style or CRPG level. That's still a small niche. Like uh, some games, you know, I- I'm not seeing a huge push for like a new Alien Soldier or things like that. And you don't even hear about those those kinds of games. Those are the failed Kickstarters. You know, I made fun of Shadow of the Eternals, but who would have thought? Like w- this hugely beloved game on GameCube, people talking left and right that they want a new game in the Eternal Darkness thing, and that thing bombed. Like. There's no sure bet. It's great to have a Wasteland 2 or a Pillars of Eternity or a Torment, but those are almost the exceptions to the rule. Well, yeah, and the other thing, Jeff Vogel wrote a fascinating article, uh, and Jeff Vogel is the you know head of Spiderweb uh, software. It does uh, a lot of old-school CRPGs, uh, things like Abaddon and Abaddon uh, 2 lately. And uh, he, the, the, he identified what I think is the actual it's the problem, but it's also like kind of the beauty of the time we're living in. Now, the problem is really simple. It's that there are way too many games. And basically, like you look at the stats, one of the most shocking stats you'll read is that 40% of the games that people buy on steams don't even get launched. Don't even get that. Nobody, that people don't even press the play button on them. They'll buy them and not, and not play them. That's 40%. Like now I have now I have seen that type of thing happen in finance and we call that one thing. We call it a bubble. Mm -hmm. All right. So like to me, it looks very much like that. And I, you know, I think I've been talking about this for a while that eventually you're going to kind of see this big consolidation. Some of these some of these huge companies, the model overall kind of has to change because right now you've got this flood of independent games but you also still have these giant AAA houses that at this point, every game they release has to be a massive success. And so because of that, because of all the noise around all these, all these games being released, you're just going to see more and more marketing dollars being thrown at the big titles that these companies release. So the big companies are going to be even less likely to take risks at this point because everything rides on them having every game they release be a big success. But at the same time, it's becoming harder and harder and harder for that little guy to get noticed simply because he's competing against so many other little guys. Yeah, it's true. And, I, you know, I really hope that we don't see a collapse because of these. This I don't be, yeah, I don't think I don't think it'll be a collapse. I mean, from the perspective of the gamer, I mean, this is absolutely fantastic. This is a right. fantastic problem to have from the perspective of the gamer, from the perspective of like a game studio executive. It's, you know, got to be the type of thing that keeps you awake at night. From yeah. our perspective as gamers, it's awesome. Yeah. So, because we're just going to keep getting these really cool games. We have games that cater to every possible niche and taste at this point. And there was a time when that was not ever the case. Yeah. And there's so many games right now. Like, looking at, if you spend five minutes on Steam just looking at stuff, you're going to find 20 games that you're interested in. But then, like Dave's saying, it's really, really hard to have the the discipline to play all those games and to say okay you know i'm gonna fire up uh this indie title you know i'm gonna fire up oregon trail i'm gonna try it out and see what i think of it even that's almost enough to justify it but people are buying things left and right and eventually they're gonna they're gonna stop buying because they have so many games to play games there were more games released on steam in the first 20 weeks of this year 
than there were in all of 2013. Wow. I agree with everything you guys say, but I don't think the purchasing is going to slow down personally. The question is not whether the purchasing is going to slow down. The question is, I, I think the purchasing stays where it is, right? I mean, like, you know, you have a pretty much, there's a, the amount people are willing to spend on games goes up a little bit every year, pretty much commensurate with, you know, earnings and things like that. And But when you have a pool that is generally static in terms of how many dollars people are willing to spend on games and the number of games increases, well, like, where does this, what do you think is going to happen? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. A lot of those games are going to get squeezed out. And I think that's also why you see the price point where they're at. Like, these game studios know that. They know that that amount of money is not going to go, is, is a pretty static number. So mm. you have to price your game aggressively to have a chance. The flip side of that, though, is if you don't sell enough copies of your game priced at that point, then it's you're more likely to lose. So it's a tricky balance. I don't know. Somebody, you know, game these game studios have very, very smart finance people. I'm sure that they're going to, you know, find a way around it. It's just an interesting problem right now. You know, it looks very much like a bubble to me, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that does not mean it's a bad thing for gamers. Like it's an awesome thing for gamers because with but it's, it's challenging part, as a developer. I'm sure as a developer, it's extremely challenging. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we hit on a cool topic and something to talk about in the near future. Um, I made a suggestion and kind of a plea to our listeners that we were looking for some questions to answer uh, from the boards. So we got two questions uh, from the message boards, and I appreciate uh, you guys taking the time to do that. So Marshmallow uh, gave us one question. It's kind of long, so let me get it all out there. Uh, To me, it feels like... Stop that. To me, it feels like the action RPG genre is currently in a renaissance of sorts, with series like The Elder Scrolls, Dark Souls, and Fallout leading the way in creating immersive open world with unique ways of doing battle. Dark Souls style of dangerous combat, VATS, etc. Simultaneously, turn-based RPGs seem to be regressing, many times seeming to use older graphical styles being relegated to handheld platforms as they become more niche. Do you think a turn-based RPG renaissance is possible, and if so, do you think it's a way off and how far i would actually make the argument that we're kind of seeing that right now we have divinity wasteland 2 pillars of eternity we have torment coming up i think and i could be wrong i think this question is asking about japanese style turn-based games okay okay so, so because and again i i will attempt to remove my disdain for the kind of people who don't consider western rpgs to be real rpgs uh, in check here, but I think a lot when someone says turn-based RPG in this style, I think they're referring to like the Final Fantasies, the Suikoden's, and that sort of oh, thing. Oh, okay, okay. Not the I'm... Baldur's Gate, like you know, uh, computer-style turn-based. Okay. I mean, I could I could be wrong, but okay. And I, I wasn't suggesting that Marshmallow was saying that. I was just saying that a lot. I uh, just remember Twitter... that we've heard we've heard today. Okay, Rob hates Dark Souls now. Stephen <laughs> hates uh, Metal Gear. Right. So everybody's what? No, I like Metal Gear. And also, Marshmallow, uh, you know, hates uh, hates Western RPGs. I, <laughs> I did not say. That. I did not say that. <laughs> so, Marshmallow, if you do hate Western RPGs, it's not, I, I'm not judging you. <laughs> I am, however, judging everybody on Twitter who's like, I'm talking about real RPGs, not Baldur's Gate. Yeah. Some guy, t- some guy told me that Baldur's Gate was not a real RPG. Well, we can actually we can actually answer both possible versions of this question, right? The first yeah. version, ah, yes, yes. Rob already Rob already pointed out. Yeah, we do think that the Renaissance is coming, if you consider those 
the you know the, those Western types to be the turn-based RPGs. But what do you think about the you know kind of that kind of that Japanese style? See, I think the Japanese style where we could see a resurgence there, but we haven't seen it is kind of like the Zavoid games, like the uh, Cthulhu Saves the World, the Breath of Death, uh, what they did with the um, the Penny Arcade games. I feel like there's an untapped potential, and at the risk of sounding like a PC gaming elitist, I think there is an untapped potential in smaller, you know, 20 to $30 titles on Steam or as PlayStation Network download titles or Xbox One games. I think that that's where they're missing out. We're seeing the resurgence in all of these CRPG styles or the Metroidvanias that we've talked about. Those are all coming from small indie developers making the games that they want to make, selling to people that want to play those games. And I think that the market has changed a little bit. You know, Final Fantasy, at the risk of really casting a giant stone here and pissing a lot of people off, the release of a Final Fantasy game used to be an event. Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy VIII, nine. Well, that's all. 10. Well, let's also keep in mind that there's also a lot more games coming out now for people to divide up their attention. Sure. No, you're right. But I think that the the traditional turn-based JRPG is a is has been very much relegated to the the handhelds. I would say, and I think that there is an untapped market in smaller games, either as steam games or, or or any of the pc gaming services i think there's untapped potential there i think that we're going to see some really interesting stuff coming with uh persona 5 i think that you know that was one of my big wow i'm really pissed off this isn't at e3 because i'm super excited for persona 5 and i think persona 5 is going to be a bfd i think that game's going to be huge for for it's not going to be call of duty huge but i think it's going to be a huge title there's so much groundswell around persona i i think though that yeah you could make the argument that the traditional jrpg has kind of been pushed to the handhelds i think that would be fair to say I wish I wish we had more information on how something that was like kind of a flagship type RPG of that style, like Nino Cooney, sold what like a million, maybe one point two million copies worldwide. Yeah. But like, but like the huge majority of that was in Japan. Yeah, meaning that it probably did not sell well. Now they were very coy about this, so you can't. I think it's hard to get the right numbers, but. You can imply that it didn't do very that it was disappointing in the U.S. in yeah. terms of sales. So I think you're going to see big developers probably they look at that and you know they get scared away. Yeah, you know, which is why it gets relegated to handhelds and stuff. Like yeah. at least Final Fantasy still has the name recognition. And Final Fantasy 15 is an action RPG. I mean, right. It, but then look look at a game like Bravely Default though. That game did very well. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's also on a handheld. I mean, it's. You know, I, it's also coming from the fact that these are Japanese developers making these games, and what are the biggest consoles in Japan right now? The 3DS and the Vita. Well, the 3DS. <laughs> Although, hey, the, Vita, the Vita had record sales this weekend. Yes, it recall. did. Yes, it did. Uh, I think the Vita... The, the idea of now starting to link the Vita and the PlayStation 4... I hope it doesn't just make the the Vita into a PlayStation 4 controller. I really hope that that makes people go, oh wow, there's some. Did you guys see the thing? Like this is this is a little off topic. Did you guys see Ken Levine musing about the game he wanted to make on Vita, a Bioshock Infinite game that was a turn-based strategy game, a la Final Fantasy Tactics? 
No, I didn't. See there that. is no god that this game does not exist. Like that. <laughs> what the hell? Like just hearing him talk about it, I was like, I would give you money for that right now. How much do you want? I, I will give you a hundred dollars for that game right now, and I will find a lot of my friends. Ken, do it. That sounds awesome. He didn't. He wasn't. I, I think all of us when he talked about making a Bioshock Infinite game for Vita, we all thought shooter. But he didn't think that way. He thought about something that really fit the console. And I think turn-based JRPGs, uh, turn-based strategy games, those fit on the console. It is absolutely insane that XCOM is not available on the Vita. Y'all remember when that was a rumor? It is insane that XCOM is not on the Vita. Right, I lied. You can play XCOM on an iPhone. Yeah, but like... You should definitely be able to play it on a Vita. Sure, exactly. exactly. Like, I want to play it on something with buttons. Yeah, yeah that, exactly. It, it's insane to me that that does not exist. And I, I think that the mobile platform, it does call for a different style of game. I'm not interested in playing a Devil May Cry game on my 3DS. I would disagree. I am. Well, I, I think the camera would be terrible. But then again, you somehow played Birth by Sleep on a PSP. So to so, answer Marshmallow's question, it depends. Yeah, I, I would say the, the Western-style CRPG is in a huge renaissance i would agree with his statement about action rpgs being the the thing right now and that's also coming from what dave's talked about on the message boards before of like rpg elements have permeated almost every type of game right now down to how you can upgrade dante or kratos like numbers and upgrades and everything the stuff that we really like about rpgs those are almost everywhere right now so I think it's just by the very nature that action RPGs have kind of moved up, but I would also make the argument that Stevens made before of Fallout to me is not an action RPG. Fallout is a turn-based role-playing game because you don't play that game as a shooter. You don't play Fallout 3 as a shooter. But when it comes to the JRPG, I think that they're they're moving toward the handheld consoles because that's where the Japanese uh, money is going right now. I mean, those are the system sellers. I think that's what they're interested in making right now. Persona 5 will be an interesting one to watch. Could it be that much the same way that Final Fantasy used to dictate where the where the JRPG was going? Like, Final Fantasy X kind of ushered in this new era of huge 3D turn-based role-playing games on the PlayStation 2. Could Persona 5 be the kind of game that comes out it makes everybody do a half take and go, wow, people are really interested in these titles. Maybe we should do something about that. And not Hironobu Sakaguchi making a free-to-play game on mobile. Ugh. Lissai. Yeah, that, isn't that just depressing? That's just, ugh. I don't know. The guy who made Lost Odyssey. I, I guess. Was that a good game? I don't even know. Lost Odyssey was amazing. Really? I have said this so many times in the show, and this proves you don't listen to me. <laughs> Love you too, honey. Okay, uh, so Marshmallow, I hope we, we answered your question there. I think, it, it, as Dave said, it's, it depends, honestly. Uh, I like Monsoon's question here. This, this might get us into some trouble here. Questions. This is a good question. Question slash prompt. What are some RPGs that, you are just, that are just okay or maybe average because they're missing something? Like C-plus RPGs that would become A-minus RPGs if they made one small to medium-sized adjustment or corrected one flaw. I would love to hear each regular pi- panelist answer or provide an answer. That's a tough one. Wild Arms Alter Code F. Okay, Steven got there very fast. <laughs> Explain yourself. Ultra Code F is not as good as the original Wild Arms, even though visually it looks better, the music is redone and is awesome, and it's a great... It, the original is a great game. 
but the they they use the combat system from Wild Arms Three, which is not my favorite combat system in that series. It's very tedious, and there's not a whole lot of sense that you're doing much progression with your characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Alter Code F sort of like exacerbated that, especially in the case where like you get into scenarios where you're fighting on horseback and you'll fight like like I think it's like 16 enemies at once that all just do nothing each turn, but it takes about four seconds for each one to do nothing. So you're sitting there watching them do nothing. Literally, the action is do nothing. For, you know, a solid two minutes, you get a turn, and they take three hits each to kill. Uh, so there are a lot of things that are very weak about that game that I feel like a combat system more like... Not necessarily the original, because that's a little dated, but uh, a combat system closer to Wild Arms 4 and 5 would have made Alter Code F really great. <laughs> Dave? I'm going to go with... Uh... Septera Core, Legacy okay. of the Creator. Anybody ever heard of that? The hell yeah, is we talked. We talked about that on the music podcast. Let's let's let me take you back to 1999 <laughs> when Monolith when Monolith Productions, uh, who's still around and like does lots of uh you know does a lot of like first person type stuff. They made the No One Lives Forever games. Oh, okay. Were, were pretty popular. They, but they they tried their hand at a uh, Japanese style RPG on the computer. This was like kind of around the same time, like shortly before I think Anachronox tried it and everything. There was a period of time where people tried to make Final Fantasy-esque type games for the computer, and they all bombed horribly, basically. <laughs> but Septera Core was this really cool concept where it was like a sci-fi game, uh, a sci-fi universe with like seven different continents, uh, all kinds of really cool weapons and everything. The problem was that the uh, combat system was, like, based kind of a little bit on Final Fantasy, but what they did was, like, the longer you waited to attack, like, the more powerful the attack was. And what was neat, what, in, in theory, this sounded like a good idea, because there would be strategy in determining when I'm going to tell the guy to attack, but in practice, what happened is the combat was incredibly dull, because you just waited, and waited, and waited, and waited, and waited to do anything. <laughs> so... It was a really, really good idea for a game, but like the voice acting, uh, you know, like was left something to be desired. The execution of the combat left something to be desired, but the story itself was really, really rad. Uh, the graphics I thought were really cool. Uh, I will never play it again, but I'm glad I played it once. But it could have been an absolute classic if, uh, you know, with a few more uh, tweaks to the combat. Hmm. I like that. I like that. A game that I'd never even heard of before. That's awesome. I'm sure it's available on uh, GOG. Yeah, it's on GOG, and Rob was on the music show, and we talked about it. Nice. I was not on a music show when you talked about it. It's probably because he doesn't listen, right? That's probably it. <laughs> yeah. You never uh, listen to me. <laughs> uh, so I, I, my knee-jerk reaction was to bring up Dragon Age 2, but then I realized that there isn't just one thing in that game that you can change, because, like... It comes down to the fact that the combat is is like, like the enemy encounters are terrible and there's repeated environments and the story's a mess. There isn't one thing. So then I started going, okay, well, what's, what's a game that if you changed one thing, I think it would honestly become great? And I brought it up earlier on the show when I was talking about Divinity. If you say I, Final Fantasy IX, I'm going to cut you. No, I love Final Fantasy IX. The only thing I don't like about Final Fantasy IX is that the story goes crazy. Um, and we've talked about that up and down, so you don't listen. <laughs> the game that I if that they, shut up Fallout New Vegas 
I really want to love that game. I, I damn near bought all the DLC when it was on Steam sale, uh, and I just wanted to fire it up again. And then I remembered the one glaring flaw with that game, which was damage threshold. Because the fact that they made it so that if you had 30 armor and somebody hit you for 29 damage, it did one point of damage. It didn't matter what they did, it was always one point of damage. But the second they hit you with 31 damage, they did 31 damage. So it was this horrible sense of like, well, all of a sudden, the best part about Fallout 3, which was going out and getting yourself into trouble and just exploring the wasteland, that's what that's what makes the Elder Scrolls and the modern Fallout games so special, is to just pick a direction and start walking. New Vegas did away with all of that with Damage Threshold, because they put up a numerical barrier that was impossible to punch through unless you had the right equipment. And I know that that's part of being an RPG. I get it. But that's not why I play those games. I play those games to explore, and that game was punishing me every time I tried to explore. And I just got fed up with it. And it wasn't like, you know, with Divinity, I can tell that it's user error. You know, I can tell that, oh, I'm not thinking right about this battle, or I'm not going about it strategically. With New Vegas, it just came down to the fact that my AK-47 wasn't doing enough damage. And so there was no way I was going to beat this thing. And it and it sucked. And then the worst part about it was that, like, certain weapon classes didn't have enough damage threshold, didn't do enough damage to break through that barrier. But good lord, melee weapons just did away with that like no other. So it, it made it so that, like, going around and punching things was doing more damage than shooting it in the face. That's an interesting one because they did kind of change the rules on you. Yeah, like in Fallout 3, that's not in the game. Like, armor is armor. Like, it, it soaks up some of your damage, but it doesn't completely prevent damage from happening. And apparently they did that to be more in line with the original Fallout games. But it just, it changed the very nature. It made Fallout into Dark Souls. And I did not want to play Dark Souls. Like, I did not, I don't play those games. I don't pump the, Steven, do you pump the difficulty all the way up when you play Skyrim? Yes. Okay, you're crazy. Like, I don't understand. To me, that's just weird, because I'm not playing those games for challenge. I'm playing those games to explore. You know what I mean? Like, and they just, like Dave is saying, they completely switched the rules on me, and they made it so that there was no sense of exploration. It, they turned it into a min-max game, and I didn't want to play it like that. I don't think Bethesda's games support min-maxing. I don't think the mechanics of their games are good enough for that. Oh, I would say Fallout 3, you can min-max like a mother. Oh, yeah, you can. You can turn your strength all the way down to 1, put your dexterity and perception all the way yeah, up. Yeah, right, I'll, I'll give that. Yeah, Fallout, I, I think you definitely can, but not the other, not the Elder Scrolls games, no. Because then you're always lacking in one area and the, and the mechanics. I love when you get your sneak skill above 100 in, uh, in Skyrim and suddenly it goes back down to 10. What? Like, they don't count the one in front of it. it. It will actually reach a point where it wraps around and becomes dog crap again. So you're all of a sudden, you're like the sneakiest guy in the world. You level it up to, like, 110, and people are spotting you. From well, the like, old, I was going to say, the, the Elder Scrolls is, like, almost backwards, right? You're not even trying to max. You're trying to min. You're trying to keep everything at level one. Well, that's which you the, do, which you, you know what I mean? Like that's just to keep the enemies from getting stronger. Well, that's the oblivion argument because yeah, in, obl- yeah. in oblivion, you you uh, leveled up based on the skill. Yeah, I guess oblivion is a perfect example of this. I remember my brother-in-law telling me like 
okay, when you're playing Oblivion, because I reached a point where the enemies just became super hard and I couldn't do anything to them because I was a stealthy character, and in the Oblivion Gates, you don't really get to be stealthy that often. You're kind of just whacking stuff. And he was like, what you need to do is restart, make a character, pick like bartering and all these awful skills to be your primary skills that determine your level. Oh, and yeah. Never use them. So you're like two-weapon fighting will keep getting stronger and stronger, but you won't level up. So you'll have 100 two-weapon fighting fighting level one enemies. Mm. And I was like, who at Bethesda thought that was a good idea? Like, what were you... That's like the Final Fantasy II argument of like, well, if you if you get hit a lot, you'll, you'll increase in hit points. Well, then that means I'm just going to punch my party in the face for three hours and make them better. Final, Fa- Final Fantasy II is awesome. No, it's not. You it also is. like Final Fantasy VIII. I don't love Final Fantasy VIII. You like Final Fantasy II? You're the first person I've ever met that liked Final Fantasy II. I don't know. Well, I'm sorry. I like games that are fun. That's a cool one. I want to think more about that question. <laughs> Shut up. I want to think more about that question, about like little things that you could change. That's a great question. I'd like, yeah. to hear, I'd like to hear I... some of the other... Uh... You know, some of the other uh, staff members talk about this one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like, if we were talking not C, but B, I definitely would have mentioned uh, Kingdom Hearts Dream Drop Distance because that was like good but needed like a different combat system and better world design, and it would have been amazing. Let me ask you a question, Stephen. What would you have scored Mass Effect 3? Back when it was just the regular ending, what would you have given that game? Right up until the end, I probably would have given it uh, a 90. Okay, and then the um, ending happens. <laughs> then I would have probably dropped it to an eighty-five. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I was thinking about like tra- uh, transistor was another one on our on our scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just keep pretending indoctrination theory is real, and that makes me feel all. Isn't better. that the only thing that makes sense, really? Like I think I, it is. But I, the, 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 but the, that was I actually when we when I played that game, I thought that that was like the obvious. Yeah, thing that must have happened. That's like, exactly when I played, I was like, oh well, this, oh, well, that's actually brilliant. And then I guess they just basically said, no, that I don't know. I just kind of I just kind of put my head in the sand on that one. I don't understand. Like when when I Dave, I'm with you. When I saw that ending, I was like, oh, this is clearly indoctrination. Like and I know nothing about the Mass Effect universe, but I figured that out. I was like, oh, yeah, that's what's going on. And then, like, to see all the theories and stuff online about everything, I was like, okay, I think you guys are, like, flipping out about watching a movie when, like, there's a difference between a scene in The Shining where a chair mysteriously, like, disappears in the middle of a conversation, and I think that is Stanley Kubrick screwing with the audience, versus at a dinner scene in a movie, somebody takes a sip of their wine and suddenly the glass is refilled. I think there's differences between mistakes and intent, and a lot of the, quote, theories for the indoctrination thing were were more mistakes than rather intent. But it just seemed like that was the direction they were going in, right down to the the visions of the small kid in the woods. I was like, this is clearly indoctrination. This is clearly Shepard's being screwed with. But then for them to come out and say no, I was like, are you guys just... Is that what happened? Did they, like, officially just, like, say, like, no way? Because, like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it makes... Because without indoctrination theory, to me, the whole thing makes absolutely no sense. Well, the extended cut, the extended cut basically said, no, it's not indoctrination theory, but yes, it still doesn't make any sense. We're just doubling down on our nonsense. Oh, got it. Well, it's, he, it was very artless. Go. It was very like there was whatever. This, you know, I'm going to pretend. I'm going to pretend. We, I'm going to pretend we didn't have this conversation. I'm I'm going to leave it at this. 
I, I think that the whole saying that it wasn't indoctrination reeks of we want to make another Mass Effect game, and if it is indoctrination, it doesn't work because the world is over. I'm going to say that's what it is. I feel like there was a really clever author well, that unless they make it Unless they make it a prequel, which would suck. Let me put it this way. We're still talking about the ending of Mass Effect 3, which to me means which to me means that they accomplished everything they set out to do, right? I really I hope they you know what I hope? I hope that they were like this is what we're going to do the whole time. It's clearly indoctrination, but we're going to swear up and down that it's not. Yeah, just that would to, be pretty great. Just to screw it like Andy Kaufman style just screwing with everybody. It's like every year Andy Kaufman's birthday comes around and people expect him to come back. Like yeah. I uh, I don't think I would give EA that much credit. Well, the question is, the question with Andy Kaufman was always, are you not giving him enough credit, or are you giving him too much? <laughs> and so that's the so that you know it could be in the same trap here. That's how I felt today when we were at the uh, the Monty Python live show. Uh, we went to a theater to watch it, and apparently the live feed just got completely screwed up, so we missed the first hour of it, and. Like, ten minutes into us missing part of this thing, I said, how many of us think that this is just them screwing with us? They're like, Terry Gilliam is behind the curtain right now, like, ha, 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 like 12 Monkeys style. Yeah, just like, let's see them. how long they'll sit there. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's actually cameras watching us right now, and they're just sitting there eating popcorn. Like, it's Brazil. It's the ending of Brazil. We yeah, all know exactly. what's going on, so... Oh boy, good question, Monsoon. I definitely want. To, I want to get Derek's perspective when he's back on the show after he's in Japan right now. If he's listening, so love you, Derek. Uh, I that's a great question. Um, okay, and and guys, definitely give us more uh, listener questions. I want this to be a regular part of the show, and I think it gives us a chance to kind of kind of get outside a little bit and stop talking about games and maybe answer some of the more like you know deeper questions. Like two really good questions this week. I really appreciate it, guys. And that's going to let Steven take us into news. I have a deeper question. Okay. Where do video games come from? Uh, I, I have no idea where he's going with this, Dave. I'm not really going anywhere with it. I wanted to ask where babies come from, but I tried to make it relevant. What? What are you even doing right now? <laughs> I'm actually just playing Castlevania, and I was trying to stall for time because I didn't pull up any news articles. Oh, okay. Now I have a few. Okay. So let's see. Uh, I'm just gonna run down the list here. I didn't see any games I I didn't see any games I cared about, so I just tried to get an even smattering of things. That's not entirely true. Uh, let's see. So uh, well, Dragon Quest X is going handheld on 3DS, which is sort of mind-boggling. That's the MMORPG. Weird. Yeah. Uh, has that been really... su- has that been successful in Japan? It must be. I don't think it's unsuccessful if it's getting a 3DS version. Okay. That's just weird. But like, yeah, there's like a new trailer for it, and like, you know, I I could be mistaken, but it's kind of the full version of the game, um, you know, the full MMO experience. And, I mean, based on the trailer, which you can see on RPG Fans front page, you know, it, it visually it looks great too. So, I mean, that's kind of cool, and that could also bode well for it actually coming out here. Well, the Wii U version certainly looks like a 3DS game. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, zing! That is cold. Sorry, that's a horrible looking game. <laughs> I think it looks pretty. I mean, I love the Toriyama art style, and I know you don't, Stephen, but like, I I think that visually that game looks like a PlayStation Two game. I mean, that's not really the purvey of the news section, Rob. So perhaps we could discuss that at a later date. Okay, fine, 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 fine. 
Uh, Final Fantasy Record Keeper was announced, which is a weird name for an app, which oh. is evidently a 16-bit game which lets you relive epic battles from the entire Final Fantasy series in a 16-bit style. And as you play it, you get the characters from those events. So, for example, you'll have the battle where Cloud fights Sephiroth, and then you get Cloud. And then you go and you fight Kuja with Zidane, and then you have Cloud and Zidane in your party. Um, and it actually looks kind of neat. Um, you know, it's there's a certain degree of it's a mobile title, um, so you know people will probably go to hate it. I mean, I would hate it on kind of by default. I can't tell if it's free to play or not. Uh, there's an official site in Japanese that I don't have a moment to read, but like conceptually, it's kind of interesting though. Like revisiting, like imagine fighting like Ultima Weapon from Final Fantasy VIII in 2D with like Cloud and and Titus. Like I think like that'd be pretty cool. Did they do a countdown for this? They didn't did. they? Didn't they do it? Well, they, they did like a countdown webpage, but Square Enix does countdowns for everything. I know, but can I just point out that we should, in fact, be talking about Final Fantasy Explorers, and instead we're talking about this mobile app, like, fan oh, we'll service get, we'll get, thing? We're going to get to Explorers, because it looks amazing. Okay, um, I'm just saying, like, uh, Square, like, come on. Oh, it, it is free to play, and it will feature microtransactions. So oh, well, there you go. We're out on whether or not they'll be ethical, but I'm going to vote no. <laughs> Uh, and I'm going to vote that I'll probably never play it as a result because I have no interest in that type of thing. Um, but that said, it does have some nice artwork and it has cool 16-bit sprite versions of classic characters. Like, you know, my um, my profile page on RPG Fan now has the animated Zidane gif of 16-bit Zidane that Mike made for me. So, you know, there's that. i got to get him to make one for me. Yeah, you should. I'll be Kuja because I love his man thong. I Kuja love that. I love is that. awesome in Dissidia. I just love his man thong. <laughs> do you ironically love his man thong, or do you like? No, but seriously love I his think man because thong? like when I finally realized what he was wearing, because like you you see him in that kind of three D PlayStation One model, and you're like, oh okay. Then you see him in a cutscene, and you're like, what? What is he wearing? He's a magical fellow. He, he is okay. So uh, Oculus Trip Undead and Undress is getting a release in Europe. So hooray for everybody in Europe or everybody not in the U.S. who doesn't usually get games. Attack his pants! Yeah, you'll be uh, stripping the sexy zombies of their clothes because you got to save Akihabara. So you know, that's coming out on uh, October 10th, which is pretty cool, and it's coming out on both PS3 and Vita. So that's pretty rad. Oh, and according to Mike's news story, uh, there was actually a PS4 version of the game released earlier this month, but no word on whether or not we'll get that version. So I, I'm not entirely sure. It would probably depend on what Exceed could do, because Exceed actually added a lot to the game with the in in concert with the development team. So, but yeah, that looks like everybody's getting Oculus Trip. So hooray! Let's see. Phoenix Online Publishing has announced a new release: Heroes and Legends: Conquerors of Kolhar, which I love you, Phoenix, but that is a generic name. But it's a neat looking little like. Uh, combination of like an RPG and a roguelike or well, like a, a classical RPG and a roguelike but it has some neat graphics and kind of like you know you know it, it I would say if I was going to make a flash judgment it doesn't have the most inspired looking artwork but it does look like something that could be fun and that's coming out on PC Mac and Linux on cool. August 21st and uh, what else we get here? So a bunch of Fire Emblem characters are in Smash Brothers and I'm taking this because I love Smash and we have a news article on it so I'm allowed to talk about it but uh, Robin, who is the uh, player character in Fire Emblem Awakening, Fire Emblem Awakening, and Lucina, who is, well, it's probably too soon to say, Lucina is a person who fights an awful lot like Marth. Uh, 
are both going to be in the new Super Smash Brothers, and Krom will also appear, although he doesn't seem to be a playable character. He's either an assist trophy or somebody's final smash. But, uh, yeah, so that brings the number of Fire Emblem characters in that game to four, because you have Ike, Marth, Lucina, and Robin. And Robin is available in both the Dude Robin and the Lady Robin versions, which is very cool. Nintendo appears to be continuing to mock Ubisoft for their inability to include women in anything. <laughs> But, uh, you know, Nintendo, the, in fact, that's what I've noticed a lot with the new Smashes. They have a lot, like Palutina, uh, the, the the chick with the star from Mario Galaxy, uh, and then, you know, uh, Robin and Lucina, so, you know, among others. So, good on them for uh, having a little variety. Speaking of that, um, and your slam against Ubisoft, can I just please put out a plea? Because I saw a bunch of news stories on this when the Dragon Age Inquisition stories please, were rolling. Please. What? You asked if you could please plea, and I yes, please, you made plea. Sorry, can I please make a plea for everybody? Oh. Steven? Go ahead. <laughs> there were those Dragon Age Inquisition previews, and apparently one of the NPCs, uh, excuse me, one of the party members in the game is gay, and he's a romance option. And the number of headlines that I read that were like, meet the new gay party member, and like, Honestly, like I was. That's really... not what we wanted. Yeah, that's not what we wanted. It... That is to say, we didn't want you to have to point out in the headline, "Meet the new gay guy." It's like, how about just meet the new character? Yeah, it doesn't like, uh, uh, like really. Uh, I was really reading that, and and the the test on this, ladies and gentlemen, is: Would you every time there's a new character, would you say whether or not they were straight? You know, I'm not trying to be ultra PC here, but it's like. That's not the important part of this character. Again, like I, it, it was just weird to me. Like I'm not trying to be the PC police. Like well, I, I mean, it's certainly relevant to include that in the article, but as a headline, I don't really like the way that cuts. Yeah, I, I actually like the fact that he is only a romance option for uh, male inquisitors, though. I do like that. I, I'm. I we talked before. I think at the E3 show about like you know when Bioware's we, unisex or unit. Everybody characters that yeah. they could be whatever you want them to yeah, be. Yeah, like, the, like all these characters in the Bioshock universe, uh, Bioshock universe, in the Mass Effect universe are like you know bisexual. And I think wasn't uh, Vega in Mass Effect Three? He was only gay, right? No, he wasn't gay at all. I don't think. Which one was the? That You're thinking of Cortez? Yes, the, the uh, pilot. Wasn't the, Cortez? He was like pilot. And Cortez was only gay, correct? He was not. Uh, yeah, but he was like a side sort of character, like. Right. He wasn't, like, a playable character. But still, the idea of having romance options that are only available to one gender, I, I like that. I just don't think that that should be the focus. Like, that that's not the important part. The important part is... Of your news article. Yeah, of your yeah, news article. The, like, the, certainly mention it, that's important. But yeah. don't be like, hey, it's a gay guy, look at that. Yeah, look at that. Like, uh, I don't know. It was just very bizarre. Like, there were a couple of them that made me kind of, like, throw up in my mouth a little bit. A couple articles that I'm like, really? Like, can we get away from the clickbait? Like, these are the five reasons. Ten new character. characters in Dragon Age, and you <laughs> won't believe the sexuality of this one. Yeah, just golly. Ugh. Anywho, sorry, Stephen. No, that's okay. Um, so, the Elder Scrolls Online, which came out, and I haven't heard anything about it since then. Uh <sighs> Apparently is getting... See, I have such an incisive wit when I do news. Uh, it's apparently they've promised a lot of solo-friendly content, which, you know, is amusing to me because the game is multiplayer. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're trying to aim to sort of make it a little more welcoming because, from what I understand, the game apparently is pretty grindy if you're not in multiplayer. Um, but, to its credit, it's still relatively fresh, and Final Fantasy XIV, before its first major content patch, had two endgame dungeons that were very 
you know, your, your only way to get further was to grind. So that's only changed with, you know, subsequent patches adding more content. So, you know, you can't really take that away from the Elder Scrolls, but it's almost like one learned all its lessons from World of Warcraft and the other didn't. Yeah, well, exactly. So, you know, it's uh, it's it's good that they're still supporting it, but I'm, I'm I'd be curious to hear some numbers on Elder Scrolls Online because I know it's still planned for yeah, so a I. console release, but uh, I haven't. It, it's not making the waves that, like, you know, you still see Final Fantasy fourteen in the news, you know, I would say almost weekly, you know, interviews and, you know, what's in the next patch and, you know, numbers and stuff that are usually rosy. So uh, that, that that this is this game is pulling a Knights of the Republic or the Old Republic, at least in my eyes, in the, you know, it fell off the face of the earth, but they say it's still successful. So I don't know. Uh, I'll Let's make a, I'll make a prediction. I don't think we're going to get a console version. Uh, I don't know. I feel like Bethesda has more to gain from that because, especially now, there's not a ton of RPGs on either of the new consoles. I, I don't think that game will sell at all on consoles. Console gamers are not, especially with Destiny coming out, if I were them, I'd look at a cost-benefit analysis and go, uh, yeah, Dave, you should call them up, ask to do their taxes or something, and be like, no. Right. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't agree with the, I don't think console gamers want MMOs, because Final Fantasy fourteen does very well on the consoles. Okay, that's a good argument. That's, that's, um, that's I, I actually think that's a smart place to put your MMO, because there are so few of them. I also don't think, uh, we, we, we said before on other podcasts and on this very show, I don't think this is what people wanted in a multiplayer Elder Scrolls game. And the second that, you know, all my students who loved Skyrim and played it up and down, when they see Elder Scrolls MMO, they're going to go, what the hell is this? Like, I, I don't know. I think that that game... I, I don't think they could have missed the point more if they tried. And Bethesda, I love you guys. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not saying that to dance on anyone's grave. want a free copy of Evil Within. No, I just want Fallout 4. Um, oh, right, right, right. And a free copy of The Evil Within and The Evil Within to not run on id Tech 5. Uh, anywho, I just don't... I, I don't think that they got... It, it, it's like when your, your buddy shows up at a party wearing the wrong outfit. Like, they thought that it was an 80s-themed party, and it turned out that it was, like, tuxes. Ninja you know Turtles. what I mean? Yeah, it oh, was... Tuxes, yeah. Well, Ninja Turtles would work for 80s themes. But when, oh, you're right. Yeah. It's always historically been staggeringly difficult to figure out how well MMOs are doing until the company basically it's, falls apart because it's because it's so hard. You have to look at the especially for larger companies that are doing these and they have all all kinds of other ways they can couch the numbers and kind of monkey with the way that the the income and the balance sheets are going like, I mean, like, I mean, what you always hear with Final Fantasy is that it has two million registered users. That's yeah. the stat you always hear in all the financial analysis. Well, that doesn't tell me anything. Right. Like, two million registered users is meaningless. I'm a registered user in Final Fantasy 14. I haven't well, paid for Final oh, Fantasy actually, 14. The, <laughs> number they, what I mean. the number they use is not two million registered. It's two million active. Well, that's my point. Two million, two million registered users is what comes across on the finance sheets. Right, because that because the only thing you can say about it is here's how many people have like signed up for the game, and they don't want to necessarily, if the numbers are bad, tell you what the situation is. Final Fantasy fourteen, I'm pretty sure by all accounts, is doing quite well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, mean, like, I don't think there's any. I don't think, I, any concern, I don't think there's any concerns there. I, I was really talking about it more in the terms of it's going to be really hard to parse how well or poorly Elder Scrolls Online is doing, even though the word is that it's not doing great. 
but Bethesda in general has a lot of very successful titles that can kind of couch this couch this in that still sell pretty well. Mm. So yeah, going to take say, a while to figure that one what, out. What tells me the most is that I, I this I could be mistaken, but I thought I heard that they cut a few Elder Scrolls Online servers and they just added a bunch of new ones to fourteen. So. That's usually a good indicator of how many people are playing your game is what your what activity you're doing in terms of adding or removing servers. Yep. Uh, well, but. well, I don't know about you guys, but uh, it's coming up on eleven thirty here, and I have work in the morning, so I am. I, I think we're gonna call it, Stephen. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. good Everybody, go call. play final, Go go get excited for Final Fantasy Explorers comes out in December or winter. Yeah, and that's in Japan, correct? We don't have a confirmed U.S. release date. No, but I'm sure we'll have it. Yeah, just like uh, how long did it take him to get uh, Agito out here? Type yeah, zero, sure. type zero. Sorry. Well, that's a remake, though. Yeah. Of a game that was on an unsuccessful platform. Anywho, uh, so yeah, thanks uh, everybody for listening to the show. Dave, Steven, you have a fun time. Always, always blessed. Cool, 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 and you guys uh, will help me out with Divinity. I think that's what we're uh, what we're gonna do. I think that would be fun. a good plan. <laughs> so uh, again, thanks so much to the listeners, uh, Marshmallow and Monsoon, for giving us some uh, some listener questions. We definitely want to do more of that. It's a chance for you guys to get shout outs on the podcast. I'll also do more shout outs if you guys give us reviews on iTunes. I am a yeah, shill. Hey, Derek yelled at me for for trying to buy reviews. I am a like shill. I will. I, no, I I know that's exactly what I said. I have no problem. Yeah, I, I will definitely advocate for you if you podcast. I, I you know. I, I will sing songs. I don't care. Just like put like, hey Rob, you need to say this on the iTunes uh, review, and I, you know, I just opened myself up to a world of hurt there, so I'm gonna roll that one back. But. Oh, and while we're and while we're at it too, uh, we are running a contest with the most recent episode of Rhythm Encounter, where you can win free music if you identify songs. So uh, feel free to listen to episode 14 in Vogue. Fantastic. Uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening, and we will see you all later. Bye. Bye.